Daniel, do you hate the 21st century as much as I do? Oh, the advancements, the technology, the progressiveness. Boy, do I hate it. If you want to throw it back to the old days, (laughs) the good old days when specifically you just got mail that you actually wanted, then you can subscribe to us on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. We will send you a handwritten postcard just like you're in the 20th century from a different place in Los Angeles every single month from us. That's for $5 a month and up for less than that. We will still thank you publicly on the air. And if you want to do that, head on over to our patreon.com slash LA Meekly, I think. Or you could just go to our website or our Instagram and you can find it there. So help support this show that you love. Keep us financially cozy so that we can just get fat and lazy (laughs) and not have to worry about anything. Take the fight out of us. Now you're just pontificating. I'm just just describing my retirement. Yeah. (laughs) Help us retire on the steamboat deck where we're fat and lazy, rich old men. And now... Here's the show. Where the hell are you? (laughs) I'm home. Where are you? I'm home. Where are you? Home. Where are you? I'm at your home. Where am I? Are we in the same place? No, we're not. Hi. Yeah. Welcome to LA Meekly. <laughs> Welcome to the first fully virtual episode of LA. Say what, first of all, say what episode uh, number this is, because people like to hear that. I Get ready for it. And have it, no and proof of that, but people like to hear that. All our old time, regular time listeners, get ready for this number. 98. Episode flabbergasted as eight. As I pointed out right before we started recording, the episode of Windows, my favorite <laughs> version of Windows. Windows and, I, and I laughed out of familiarity and I said, Wow, you won't stop word association. Um, Windows 98 was a seminal moment for me. <laughs> I was never the same after Windows 98. How can I not bring it up when I hear the number 98? Just get ready for the Wayne Gretzky episode uh, next month. Um, he's number 99. So I got let, it. Let's get back to you. Don't get it. Let's get back to the the elephant not in the room, meaning you. Yes, and I me. am not in the room. We're, we're each other's elephants right now. We're not in the rooms of each other. But yes, this is our first fully zoomed episode because things are pretty bad out there right now, and we don't mm. really want to be in the same room together. And um, it's windy as hell outside, so we don't want to be outside together either. It'll offset my allergies. But how about you propose that I go out in the Santa Ana winds and take. <laughs> all that allergy in my face now you have to deal with your home allergies which are osha went through your house and was not happy with what they saw in there they had a lot of questions osha that's what they said (laughs) when they walked in yeah so if there's any audio we're going to try to make this i'm going to try to make this audio as good as possible with this uh, let's just say it lesser format of recording a podcast it is a lesser format where we're all it is i miss you i set up a dummy made out of a sack of potatoes in front of me it's not the same (laughs) and i keep stabbing it and it won't cry i keep putting ketchup on it and it tastes not the same without you yeah this is just uh yeah this is just much safer we also did a live stream with the la not so confidential podcast this weekend and that was a lot of fun but it was also our first no it wasn't our first it was the biggest lot the biggest group of zoom we've ever been in it was at times hard because there was four people and i didn't want to like 
cut off three people at once with yeah. something I had to say about Windows 98. <laughs> My manners kept get like I'd, I'd have the perfect thing to say, but I'd cut someone off. So I, I would you charge had, in and then immediately like, sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm so yeah, sorry. You'd go in sword drawn yeah. and then you'd uh, commit seppuku uh, <laughs> out of shame. <laughs> I didn't realize that you guys were still getting ready for a war. I, I, I apologize. I apologize. I'll come back out when you're ready. Just call me in and I'll charge in. With Jerry question. Lewis charging into war. <laughs> more uh, of a Hugh Grant. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, oh, geez. Oh, oh. Your Jerry Lewis is Hugh Grant. <laughs> We're going to release the either the audio or the video of that maybe by the time this comes out. Although I doubt it, but probably soon it'll come out. But let's look, let's let's welcome our new Patreon oh, members yes, that we clear. have this month. We've got another, I feel like everyone is just slowly becoming our names. But first off, we've got Greg Rubin. Hi, Greg Rubin. Isn't Greg the best name? Isn't it so much better than Craig? <laughs> Still, we've got not enough damage. Daniels. Uh, we've got a, a Danielle, uh, a few Daniels, I think. Maybe like one Daniel, but... Where have all the Daniels gone? <laughs> this is what you do. I'm doing it now. Is that the song that plays when you start up Windows 98? <laughs> then we we have our old pal Greased Weasel upped his pledge, so Whoa, we thank him for that. That was very... Greased and hey, thank you, you can all do that too. I mean, why not? If Greased Weasel does it. You, you don't want to be a la Greased Weasel. Do what they do at auctions where they do... Sl- oh yeah, $10? Well, guess what? $15! And just <laughs> have it out with yourselves and uh put us on that steamship deck that we want to retire on rocking chairs the, greg that was an ad we did before the show it's not supposed to that's not part oh, of the different. main storyline here and then we've got one more patreon person speaking of uh, the la not so confidential live screen we've got dr shiloh supporting dr. us on patreon from the la not so confidential podcast which you should check out and listen or watch the thing that we did with them there this is a great podcast i had so much fun talking to them and i had been listening to their stuff they they had done a really great episode on the Wineville Chicken Coop Murders, which we talk about also in the Marion Barker episode. So yeah. go ahead and listen to their podcast. It's great. But They're like doctors. They're like two doctors. Uh, when, when we were on the Zoom with, with them, it, it just felt weird that like there were two doctors and then us in there. And I and part of me wanted to start claiming I was a doctor, but I was like, that, this isn't going to go anywhere if I start telling people I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor of liking jazz. <laughs> and you just trail off. You walk out of the Zoom with a trumpet and we never see you again. And I end up in an actual doctor's office <laughs> happen to me <laughs> he won't let go of the trumpet he's breathing through it now yeah thank you so much for our new patreon people can't wait to send you postcards uh, i hope that you can read them what are you trying to say we both have illegible handwriting and it's embarrassing it's embarrassing that i will reach a certain point after like a sixth postcard where it's just like whatever my hand does you have to accept it when i write the postcards i burn a bunch of sage and put a <laughs> bunch of uh, various leaves and herbs around and i just breathe it all in and go into a trance <laughs> and just automatic write 30 postcards and and who would have thought that i keep replicating the zodiac letters it's the, the old thing. philosophical question if you huff a bunch of herbs and write 30 <laughs> postcards at once you're gonna recreate the zodiac letters you only need to hear it one time and i keep pumping it out well look before we pump out this month's episode let's talk about what we did before we pump it out together what did, what did you do in the past month of january i returned to trade tech i've been going back to trade tech for the auto spraying classes which i'm a big fan of and the lowrider magazine has rented the spray booth next rented they donate to the school so they they have the privilege of using the spray booth next to us so i've been talking to the guy who runs Lowrider magazine. When I say talk to, I said, can I get by you real quick? Uh, but it's great. It's it's super cool being back at school. And uh, You got to stop using trade tech as your thing of the month. Uh, because I go to trade tech, I can't do anything else because I have to get up at 545 in the morning. Well, you should have read a bunch of Lowriders and picked Lowrider magazine as your thing of the month. Do you think that guy, could you talk to him about getting my car in there? 
uh, into Lowrider magazine. <laughs> Daniel keeps using the unprofessional term, my car has become untucked, which is like it's Billy Pilgrim falling through space or falling through time. I mean, it's uh, been dislodged from a, a functioning <laughs> car. Yeah, the, the like shielding underneath my car keeps coming loose. And like I took yeah. it in to get fixed and they're like, it's A-OK. And then I got <laughs> home and it was like, boom. We thought you wanted more gas is that what you were t- I th- you came for oil change why are you telling me about your untucked thing uh, you kept referring to it as uh, you need your car tucked in so we just put a blanket around it we oh, taped okay. it to its thigh is that what we understood tuck is a different thing <laughs> we taped the muffler to the thigh of the car <laughs> but but yeah anyway i'm a low right uh, just just put plant the idea that there's more yeah. than just nice looking cars that are right 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 oh that's right you're you do actually have a low we've been commenting that you have a low rider uh, yeah. because your rider is incredibly close to the ground yeah uh, and it's and as Prius. we as we dis- it's not a Prius. I, how dare you say I have a better car than I do? I do not have a Prius. <laughs> I just want to see how you'd react to that. But look, let's get to my thing of the month. You uh, actually were with me for this thing that I did this past month. I'm going to have to choose Pioneer Chicken oh. as one of my favorite things that I did oh. in the last month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we went as part of something that will be coming out soon that we yes. did. We uh we went to Pioneer Chicken. What was it? Bell Gardens or something? The, yeah, Bell Gardens. The city without bathrooms. <laughs> uh, I love it because I have a Pioneer Chicken shirt I got from Valley Relics, and uh, everywhere I go, I get stuff. It's my most popular shirt. If I want people to approach me that day, I wear the Pioneer Chicken <laughs> shirt because people will just come up to me and be like, "I live near the last one, but there's two more left." I'm feeling Bell- pretty today. I'm gonna wear my Pioneer <laughs> Chicken shirt. There's two more left, and Bell Gardens is one of them, and I think Boyle Heights is the other. Did you like? Pioneer chicken. I thought because you you were saying like yeah it's good but it's really greasy and I yeah. didn't find it to be that greasy. I mean sure a bunch of grease fell out of it when I bit into it, but sure my hand was wet. But there's I mean there's like you know like fast food fried chicken is sort of its own category of fried yep. chicken and I found I thought it was really good and weirdly enough like for two days afterwards I don't know what's in that chicken but I was like craving more pioneer chicken for two full like it was like i had to get detoxed from pioneer chicken i went cold chicken <laughs> yeah it's very i remember getting it as a kid because there used to be i think the original was down here on echo park avenue uh where the little caesars is now and i yeah we'd get some and I'd what be an like, there has to be more there has to be more in that bag they're like no no there's no more eat the bag and i would yeah no it's delicious the, bag's uh, made the, of fries, skin. Are, the fries are just as good i was really worried because you don't like fast food so I, I like, do you, like fast food, but there's a lot of bad. It depends on the fast food. Like right, right, right. The fast food you eat is bad, but like oh when, I, when I when I get the old fast standards. food, it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't go to Taco Bell. I go to Green Burrito. That's you thinking you're better than everyone else. I don't waste my time at Burger King. I go to Farmer Boys. <laughs> I go with his, his illegitimate children. The, illegitimate <laughs> the Farmer Boys are the illegitimate <laughs> children of the Burger King. But yeah, I recommend going there if you've never been there. It's like a you know, it's like a piece of LA food history, uh, a piece and a thought of LA food history and I would go there before who knows how long those are ever going to last but it was, it's, it was very good I, I enjoyed it a lot uh, they don't have a bathroom so don't go in there desperately thinking you're going to be able to go to the bathroom yeah. don't go cracking your knuckles being like I'm going to so use yeah. the bathroom don't, here don't drink an entire bottle of water yeah. leading up to it going there's got to be a bathroom I'm sure they let me do they know who I am do they know who I'm hungry do they know I'm who hungry. I am <laughs> okay so that was that month we're going to do a listener question at the end it's now February 1st it's the love month of course love month. and you know Greg I was strolling through the park one day in the merry merry month of let's just say February so <laughs> you, you don't want to save a song and a, an old timey rhyme for the beginning of your segment or are you no, this is a throwaway I, you planned yeah, th- on already. This is a bonus because I forgot to. Uh, <laughs> this episode, we're going to be talking about parks 
a few mm-hmm. parks. We got four parks in the city for you. If you aren't familiar, that's a place where you go outside and you have your quinceanera party, your after party of your quinceanera. So I believe you're going to start us out. You have a really old park for us. The two that I'm covering this month both claim to be the oldest park and nobody can seem to agree. And I'm doing research on both. I'm like, oh, it's clear which one is. You keep picking things that you claim are the oldest thing. And then I come in with hard facts and say, no, nay, Greg. Oh, yeah. I got a fact on an illegitimate website. Swasticalize.net. So take us here, Greg. Settle in and get mm-hmm. ready. Yeah, bring a picnic. We, Everybody bring a, a pioneer chicken. Get some pioneer chicken. Pioneer chicken. And go into all these parks. With a picnic basket. We are here to talk about the oldest public park in Los Sh- Angeles. Sure. Elysian Park, which sits above the Elysian Valley, where Spanish explorer Gaspar de Portola looked upon the area and thought, we can make a Pueblo out of this. <laughs> we could play baseball here. We could definitely play baseball here. It's going to upset a lot of people, though. On both um, coasts. <laughs> Elysian Park was home to a Keech village near the LA uh, Police Academy. Academy, and it was within this area, as we already brought up, that Chavez Ravine was settled and later destroyed for Dodger Stadium. Leisure Park is some 570 acres of lush natural landscapes and includes, as I mentioned, the Police Academy, Dodger Stadium, but also Cathedral High School, Go Phantoms, the Barlow Respiratory Hospital, the Naval Reserve, where in 1943 U.S. sailors left on Firth to stir up the Zoot Suit riots, the Grace Simmons Lodge, Leo Pelodi Park, who's the watercolorist who draw a lot of Bunker Hill stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a, it has a park dedicated to him. Angels Point, the Arroyo Cycle Freeway Tunnels, which are really beautiful the avenue of the palms where we got trapped in a lowrider show lowrider parade greg that's what we call them that's what we with uh honda civic hybrids call them (laughs) it's really low it really is low though right it's not one word it's two words i'm a lowrider so i belong i'm the rider my car is low but (laughs) i'm by rider i mean (laughs) w-r-i-t-e-r because i'm so low on what the term rider means (laughs) the park also has the victory memorial garden the chavez ravine arboretum is it arboretum right arboretum is it arboretum yeah the arboretum Arboretum. Arboretum. Now, one, now that you're saying it, I keep wanting to say an arboretum, but that's not anything. That's a word you just made up. <laughs> I'm going to say arboretum. Arboretum, the Buena it's Vista arboretum. Reservoir, and many miles of wonderful hiking trails and some of the best views of the city. This is Elysian Park. Many speculate that the Keech Village Yang Na, which you know, a lot of people think that's near City Hall on the 101 freeway, but there's some who believe it was actually in the bounds of Elysian Park. Why would they want it? They wouldn't want to be so far from the river, though. I mean, it's not uh, that far, but you want to be like, that far. all on the river. But remember that the river, the river I don't know if- flood. The river would flood but also i don't know if the river it would go along there i remember they had the zanha madre which went directly through the pueblo but i don't know if the river river like the la river actually goes closer to the bluffs of boyle heights Elysian park grows history by the bushel that was the end of that sentence that uh, you interrupted as well as being the oldest park in los angeles pershing square i'm also talking about pershing square buried lead but whatever was established earlier but it's a man-made park so uh, it's not at the same no thing. no pershing square all that concrete happened naturally. <laughs> that was that was there before the natives even got here. You know how the tar pits makes tar? Well, Persian Square from the ground Maybe makes cement. Fully formed concrete. <laughs> Square angles. And um, all those needles come up too, naturally. <laughs> so if we're talking about Park Park, Elysian Park is the oldest public park park okay, right, in my right. brain. Park A park. nature park. Yeah. It's also the second largest park following Griffith Park, of course. Uh, someone should keep tabs on how often we say the word park today. It, I think we're already in the 80s um uh, if you're wondering where Elysian Park is I already said it's you know Dodger State if you think of Dodger Stadium th- that's Elysian Park but if you want to know the borders of it are the five freeway beside Elysian Valley affectionately referred to as Frogtown on the north Lincoln Heights on the east Chinatown on the south and Echo Park and Elysian Heights on the west 
Hills are, it's, it's very gorgeous. big, I, but it's like big. people, I mean, people live in a lot of it. There are a lot of people who live on the rim of it, and then there's, of course, Chavez Ravine right in the middle, and then there's still the remnants of whatever wasn't destroyed for Dodger Stadium, like Solano Canyon and everything around the Naval Reserve. Uh, so there are people who do live within the bounds of the park. Uh, young police officers, young uh, Navy officers, and That's a bunch right. of people who can't sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> what a good mix. With all of the like gun training uh, that's going on. All these people who can't sleep at night, you're going to sleep in between these two gun ranges. <laughs> so let's go back to a little bit of history. Both my parks go way, way, way back to like old Spanish Los Angeles. In 1769, when the Spanish expedition to conquer California started, you know, Portola and his group of explorers crossed the mighty Los Angeles water stream and they camped on the bluffs of Elysian Park and they, they have a, a monument there. It's just off of uh, North Broadway, that long bridge that goes, leads you into um, Lincoln Heights where that meets the park. There's a monument. That's where they slept that night or whatever that day. And today <laughs> that's- toothbrush is still there. <laughs> this was the first recorded mention of the area made on August 2nd, 1769. It's said of the group of Native Americans living near Solano Canyon greeted them with the refreshments. Probably should have saved the tang for a more worthy guest, but we they didn't know that. We know that now. <laughs> Anyways, the bluffs were just a stop for the Spanish expedition. They were on their way to Monterey. Following them on this road trip was Spanish missionaries opening up labor camps known as missions, as we all know already. With the help of their old pals, enslaved Native Americans held against their will. In 1771, just two years after Portola took a, a nap at the edge of Legion Park, Junipero established the San Gabriel Mission 11 miles east. And this said, just to once again illustrate how fast the wrecking ball swept through the lives of the Native Americans in the area. Right. Yeah. Once, um, it, once you pop, you can't once stop. You can't stop. So once you padre, you can't stop. That you got it. Just 10 years later, when King Carlos III of Spain signed off on the founding of the Pueblo de, Lo Han de Los Angeles, the area that became Elysian Park was the la what? You almost so close. You got so Latin for a second. I know. And I'm like, pull back. You can't roll that. You start regrowing hair and it was going yeah. into a perfect Ricky Ricardo quaff. The area that became Elysian Park was the last remaining space from the original land grant. So of the original land grant, when they signed off, when Spain signed off on this becoming a, a town, this is the last remaining space of that that's not been developed, that it's like right. almost intact. So the, when you step on a piece of grass in Elysian Park, this is like, wow. <laughs> it's like, wow. Yeah. Even though that's not the lifespan of grass. Yeah. <laughs> this grass has been here since 1760, 1769. Even though it's been clearly cut uh, and clearly replanted. Uh, so that's seventeen. 81 Spanish days, not 1821 when Mexico won independence and took over California. And that's not 1848 when California becomes part of the United States. Elysian Park is just a slice of a time capsule in the natural landscape of old Los Angeles. At the time that Spain took over the area and made Los Angeles a Pueblo, they were either giving away or auctioning off all the land. Right. That's what they were just doing. That's a lot of grass to give away. The area that became Elysian Park was comprised of steep hills and rugged terrain. So there was a lack of development in certain key areas of the yeah. park in the early days. We say like, I can't believe it never got developed. Like, how? 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 Like yeah. it's it's mostly a mountain. <laughs> I mean, like the parts that are flat did get developed on, but the, like there's a lot of it is like how. But that's what I a, a point I want to make was like Elysian Heights and Echo Park is just over the hill, and Baxter and Fargo. They looked at Fargo and were like, yeah, mm, let's true. put a house on that thing. <laughs> so it's kind of weird that they look like just around the corner. Like there's no way. We are not, we can't even auction, we can't give this away. There's no way you could develop on it. And around the corner, like, oh, just do it there, though. Was that the steepest hill in Los Angeles? Yeah, go ahead, put something up there. Um, so you're saying I could have had more Baxters to deal with <laughs> if we had just developed on a leisure It would have been. You can't see my yeah. hand movement. It's, it's basically going up and it's down. Goliath. In 1849, once the lousy bum Americans had taken over the city, they continued auctioning off 
parcels of land to pump up the city's revenue. But Elysian Park, which was known then either as Rock Quarry Hills or Quarry Hill Park, one of those two, one of those two. Now you're turning into East Coast. Like I said, it was either called, it was either Rock Quarry Hills or Quarry Hill Park. It was one of those two. Quarry Hill Park. My favorite quarry was Quarry Hill Park. (laughs) A lot of that area was pooled from public auction block and it said reserved for public purposes. We're necking and canoodling and what did we call last time? Shadow Whoopie? Shadow Whoopie. I have Shadow Whoopie coming up in my episode. We can't let it go, can we? No, I can't. How are you going to let go of Shadow Whoopie? It seems like this culture can't let go of Shadow Whoopie. (laughs) Now, like I said earlier, the hills and canyons made the area undesirable to sell off because you couldn't build homes or businesses there. Yeah, yeah. I think that this almost is a perfect mix because it was gorgeous and the terrain was too challenging for development. Yeah. And maybe that's the key for purity yeah. and longevity in the city is like, it's gorgeous, it's but like try to, to but try to build a house on that yeah. hill. If you want to save an old building in Los Angeles, just put it on top of the steepest. Build it teetering off the edge of Angel's Flight. No, one, <laughs> no one's going to touch it. That's where we could have the next record shop that never gets destroyed. <laughs> you have to like hire a Sherpa to get there. <laughs> so it was being preserved, right? Nobody, it, they, they didn't want to auction it off. They couldn't sell it. They couldn't give it away. Just around the corner from being an undesirable parcel of land was the natural preservation movement. The late 19th century was the era when, when John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt and Charles Lummis and others that like them sought to preserve natural, beautiful natural landscapes of America that were fading at the dawn of the 20th century. You know, Yellowstone was made a national park in 1872. That was the first of its kind. So this is around that era. So following that enthusiasm, Mayor Edward Spence and the city council of LA dedicated the area of Legion Park as as a city park. And at that point, the Rock Quarry Hills were renamed Elysian Park, named after the Elysian Fields from Greek mythology, where good souls went, obviously went to a sweet afterlife. Sweet oh, yeah, afterlife. that's their, that's their, their, their I was trying to think of, um, that's their Dave and Busters. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what you're looking for? As the Greek had the Elysian Fields, <laughs> so do the Americans all pass on to Dave and Busters one day. <laughs> you're either good enough in life to pass on to Dave and Busters or you end up at Fuddruckers. <laughs> And God have mercy God you. on your fudrucking soul. You'll be pushing a boulder in fudruckers for the all of eternity. <laughs> With like a vulture eating a chicken burger out of the side of your stomach. That good luck getting any sauce on that. That was hell for Prometheus, but it was heaven for the vulture. A meal every morning? That's a beautiful way to recontextualize. <laughs> this is this is the reboot of the Prometheus story. What about the crow? The book of crow. Um, <laughs> the crow wasn't such a bad guy. He was just trying to make a living. He was sick of his marauding life. Trying to make a living. So the city charters after this point would grant Legion Park protection for the parkland in perpetuity. And while that seems pretty cut and dry as far as preservation, groups still have to fight to keep the park as beautiful as it is. But we'll get to that a little, a little bit later. Just let it. It's a park. It grows. Don't even cut. Don't don't landscape it. Just let it grow wild. Just a post-apocalyptic public park. That was one of the hardest things I've ever had to say. It took you a couple tries. Um, <laughs> We've been here for an hour. You've been trying to say it. Uh, you cut I it all cut out. Most though. of it out. That's the beauty of Zoom. <laughs> Along with dedicating and establishing the area officially during the 1880s, there were about 30,000 eucalyptus trees planted within the park. Oh my God. The committee on, I know there's a lot. The committee on parks as well purchased the first plantings of gum trees for $200. The mayor from 1889 to 1892, Henry Hazard, pushed hard for the beautification of the park along with the LA Times editorial staff. By 1893, over 150 trees had been planted, including eucalyptus, live oaks, pines, cypresses, deodar ciders, and more. During the 1890s- Deodar are the ones on the E.T. street. Those are the trees from E.T. That's good to know. If you need a picture at Watch E.T., don't Google it. Just Watch E.T. Which is uh, the Elysian Fields of Movies is E.T. <laughs> uh, when you die, you're going to go to a movie theater yeah. and they'll be playing E.T. And when you die, they're going to be playing Mac and Me. <laughs> when I die and go to hell, they're going to be playing E.T. 
Uh, how dare you proceed? <laughs> During the 1890s, the Los Angeles Horticultural Society began pining different species of rare trees, which became a double row of wild date palms north of Stadium Way. They were responsible for the Chavez Ravine Arboretum, the first botanical Arboretum. garden arboretum excuse me the first you're going to change it every time i say it it's, Greg, it's an arbitorium we <laughs> we already established that uh, they were responsible for the chavez Ravine Ar- arbitorium arbitration um, yes that was the first botanical garden in southern california it was right here in the oh, wow. park they planted the trees along the avenue of the palms uh, along with greenery the park got trails roads and bathrooms installed the pioneer chicken and bell gardens could learn a thing or two from them this is where all the bathrooms went uh historically this was the bathroom i was supposed to have gone to pioneer chicken but <laughs> oh anyway. that's why there's a guy with a wagon and being yeah, that's why chicken that's or why, whatever on the that's day. why pioneer pete is, is looking for a bathroom he's like uh, pioneer pete Pioneer Perry, he's like the La Llorona. He's looking for a bathroom. Yeah. He's, like, Where? he's weeping. They took my bathroom away they from me. They took my bathroom. He, and he wanders the dark parks at night. Where are my bathrooms? And then El Santo fights him. What trouble Elysian Park right into in 1899 was directly tied to push to preserve more greenery in urban areas. At this point, 1899, it had to contend with the other city parks like Pershing Square, Hollenbeck Park, and MacArthur Park, then known as Westlake, but also the new park in town, Griffith Park, which had completely dwarfed Legion Park. Legion yeah. Park was 550 to 600 acres, depending on when you ask. But Griffith Park is like more than 4,000 acres <laughs> in total. It's like a vast yeah, natural it's landscape. It's ridiculous it how cut it big. in half. Griffith Park was formally established in 1896. And Griffith Park, a lot like Daniel using CBD oil, is a lot higher. The views are better. <laughs> Hang on. I just... <laughs> I nearly choked on my CBD when you said that. Greg, you know that there's no THC in there. You know this, Greg. Maybe you need to take a walk through the arboretum, as you call it, and learn a little bit about botany. How many CBD oil jokes do I have? I think I have a lot. If I do like a search for CBD, like it's just going to like, which which one of the 90 entries do you want to find? Now you do sound like me doing a search for CBD. <laughs> That's the next Star Trek sequel, the search for CBD. Griffith Park's altitude is much higher. It's got yeah, I bet you the are. observatory. It's got the uh, Hollywood sign on the back end of it. Uh, the views are great the vastness the trails the walt disney anecdotes it was hard to compete with a more natural wonder in the middle of the city than griffith park so it was getting a lot of attention and all the parks all together were eating up all the city budget so legion park was suddenly getting a lot less love it should also be said before continuing into the 20th century that as undesired quote unquote undesirable and somewhat treacherous the city officials found Legion park to be the community of chavez ravine was beginning to establish itself in the hills and the canyons at the, at the beginning of the 20th century and in 1855 the first jewish site in Los Los Angeles, a Jewish cemetery opened up by the Hebrew Benevolent Society of Los Angeles, was it set up in Elysian Park too? Oh, yeah. So, like, where are the graves now? You know, I don't know. I didn't look oh, into no. that. Oh no! <laughs> we but didn't if you look, dig up the bodies. You built the naval reserve on top of it. Um, <laughs> Jewish poltergeist. <laughs> uh, if you're looking for it, it's at 800 there West Lilac. Uh, go on. Stop it! Stop it right now. <laughs> Which is also the, that's part of the Jewish gay rights <laughs> chant. We're here. We smeared. <laughs> Get used to it. Oh my God. I, I don't, how do I stop the recording? Yeah. yeah I can, this oh, is, it's up to me now. When, when I can stop in, the recording. Yeah, when we're in a room together, you, I will never let you just walk out, but you're totally free to just close your laptop at yeah. any moment. You didn't handcuff my hand to the, to the chair this time, did you? It's padded, isn't it? It's a pan, handcuff. You like it. Tell them you like it. It's Tell also, everybody that you like it. I like the restrictions Daniel puts on me. No, so tell him you them. like the handcuffs, you kinky I little like, pervert. <laughs> I specifically like the padded handcuffs that Daniel puts on me. Now tell him about the feathers. <laughs> the boa. You love the boa, right? If you're looking for the, the site of the Jewish cemetery, it's at 800 West Lilac Terrace near Lookout Drive behind the Naval Reserve for the curious. So the hills were home to some and a final resting place for others. So like as much as the city's saying, there's nothing we could do with this land. Like people were finding things to yeah. do with it. Park beautification continued at the end of the 19th century 
centuries as it did the modern improvements. Uh, I put modern in quotations. Improvements to the access roads and more footpaths. And other things began to develop in Legion Park. In 1902, you know, Dr. Jarvis Barlow opened up the Barlow Sanitarium, later Barlow Respiratory Hospital in one of the yeah, valleys in right. the park. You, you, it's a respiratory hospital, not a sleep clinic. But people who they, have respiratory problems can't sleep well at night. I think that those cabins across the street from it are officially the sleep okay. center All thing, right. which they look haunted. They look like you made a wrong turn in Camp Crystal Lake. And I, you're like, oh, yeah. no. I mean, we were saying before, like, put them between two military training facilities. But, like, no one wants to sleep in a haunted bungalow either this isn't gonna go well also it was their first so there was a respiratory hospital and then two military operations were like we gotta we gotta be near this thing yeah that opened up quiet down talk about barlow a little bit when he was younger i I think we covered this in maybe the chavez ravine episode but we'll talk about it a little bit more when barlow was younger he was living in new york and he came down with a mild case of tuberculosis and it was treated by warm dry air of the west so when it came time for him to help others and open a facility to treat them he and his wife traveled to southern california on a horse-drawn carriage like pioneer pete Oh, they're related. On their westward expansion search for public bathrooms. I told you to go in Omaha. I said go in Omaha. Now look at one of the ocean. Around. That blue line, that's the Pacific. You man, you gotta pee in the ocean now. <laughs> um it's not pee. The spot they found was in Chavez Ravine, which at the time, you know, he traveled through the beautiful meadows tucked in rolling hills, and it was like, Oh, this this is it. Like this is where I'm gonna make people Shadow lives whoopee. better. Shadow whoopee. There are thirty two buildings that make up the hospital and they were be done between nineteen oh two to nineteen fifty two, and many are done in either craftsman or spanish revival style so it's really worth the stuff they're really beautiful they are but they're uh, especially because like i only seem to be there at night bringing you home so it's always scary oh absolutely and And that's not it's not even talking about the buildings just bringing you home at night is scary um i I want to stop so much i don't yeah i I want to stop so often i don't know when you're just gonna just lose it just snap and so that flip switches and you just I mean, we say that I put the handcuffs on you to keep you in here, but really it's to keep me safe. I have to tie you up like Hannibal Lecter when we do an episode because you just flip out. Part of my charm is you never know when it's going to happen. <laughs> People like to live on the edge. Talking about Barlow a little bit more, though, they're in the height of the AIDS crisis of the 80s. Barlow Respiratory Hospital had a wing dedicated to helping people who are suffering from it. Mm-hmm. So it was like a place that was continually trying to help people. So it's it's a good spot in LA history, mm-hmm. right there in Elysian Park. In 1931, the nicest part of the Royal Cycle Freeway, the 110, was constructed and that's the four figueroa street tunnels right which yeah, were I guess added. that is a lesion park isn't it it is a lesion park yeah that's the far edge of it solano canyon's on the other end of that freeway so they, they obviously knocked down a lot of solano canyon to build this stretch of road which they later connected to the 110 and i think in like 1940 yeah yeah um, we know all this whatever we don't have to rehash how complicated it was to try to figure <laughs> out what freeway connected when and where the tunnels are on my list of the top 10 most beautiful things in the city they're so gorgeous just They're driving through nice. them is so nice. Yeah. I, I one day had an epiphany of like, oh, you know why I don't appreciate this enough is because I can't, I yeah, want to walk always, through them. Yeah. You're always like driving <laughs> and, and you can't even sure. look at them. Like, cause, no. cause that, that stretch of the freeway is also pretty scary. So like, yeah. it's, you can't, if you were to stop and appreciate life, that would be the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're a tagger or the homeless guy who lives above the arch of one of the tunnels, yeah. which I'm like, dude, you're going to fall. Like, you're going to fall. I know there's a gate there, but you're going to slip through it. Is he like lying on it like Snoopy? Uh, No, 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 no. It's it's There's like a, a dirt patch behind it on the oh, hill okay. and he's yeah, sleeping up still, there. You're well, going to fall and I'm going to... But you're safe from other people, but you're not yeah, safe from no, gravity. No one else is brave enough to go up there. <laughs> I hope I'm not riding that guy, but then, no, I don't think any cops listen to this. By I Meryl make sure but- of that. The tunnels were designed by Merrill Butler, who also gave us a lot of the LA River Bridges and also the Glendale Hyperion 
Bridge. The tunnels are very Art Deco and feature elegant deco patterns, elemental street lamps, reflective tiling on the inside of the tunnels, and a stylized seal of Los Angeles outside of each of the openings. Mm-hmm. It's a really, they're really beautiful. And I wish we could walk through them. I wish they had like a block party where they just cut, yeah, they, they should, stop the freeway and yeah. we could walk through them. Close off one of the busiest freeways in the city for a day. Absolutely. One of happens. the most essential freeways. <laughs> in 1925, the LA Park Commission issued a temporary permit to the Los Angeles Police Revolver and Athletic Club to use a parcel of land in the park as a revolver range. And by 1935, the City Board of Parks granted the club a 25-year subsequently renewed permit to operate in the area of the park. I mean, uh, eventually this spot was taken over by the LAPD and it became the LAPD Police Academy right there. You know, the, the I guess that's the western part of Chavez Ravine. One of the mainstays of that gun range that be- became a police academy was our old villain, former police chief Jim Chugun Davis, right. one of the worst yeah, when people. You s- <laughs> when you said revolver, I was like, I think I know a I, guy who likes revolvers. So he he pretty much set up that gun range. He was like the star of it. We already know he shot like a cigarette. He has a video of him shooting a cigarette. They had like turkey shoots where he brought women and they would just shoot turkeys. Oh, great. Uh, anyways, he's one of the worst men in, in LA history. But during the summer 1932 Olympics here in Los Angeles, the men's 25 meter rapid fire pistol competition was held at that gun range in Elysian Park. 25 it, meter won. rapid pistol competition? rapid fire that's like a they don't i don't think they do that anymore that's like an old west olympics sort of thing the olympic high noon draw (laughs) spain versus italy italy won i'm like oh that makes sense because they like westerns a lot (laughs) yeah they just shoot shoot spaghetti though so here's another thing about the police academy two gun davis Mm -hmm. summer olympics the la police academy in legion park was also home to an iconic rock garden which is so funny to me i don't know why the police need to be reformed we need some transparency check out that rock garden at serene Turn on that body cam. Like it's it fits in so weird in the history of the police <laughs> to me. In 1937, they got landscape artist Francois Scotty, and he was hired to design the rock garden. And in, in 1973, it became a uh, LA historic cultural monument. I read on the LA Police Revolver and Athletic Club's website that a you it was be on that website when I opened. It's my default home page. <laughs> What's going on today? Apparently, according to the website, a labor force of LA PD officers and trustees built the rock garden themselves and the stone walls. So like this guy designed it and they, they were like, we got to get over there because we're butch and we got to build this rock garden. Uh, and it's so lovely. You keep describing a, a, a rock. What is a rock garden? Like what they have in Japan and there's like these bloodthirsty cops from the 20s are raking sand into intricate designs. No, it, it's like, a, I don't I don't know how to describe it. It's sort of like a, um, can I send you a picture on your phone? Uh, so you get it? Yeah, I text you. It's a rock I, garden. I, I, there's too much technology involved right now it looks very tropical i can say it looks very tropical even for the 30s okay. it's a very tropical looking i mean if you want to see it there's a lot of tarzan movies and they filmed the intro to charlie's angels there <laughs> send me a picture of it after we record and then i'll add Fine. uh my reaction in right here Oh, wow. Whoa! So it has like four Rock pools. Rock and roll. <laughs> so this area has four pools, stone seats, a waterfall, a barbecue pit, and an amphitheater, and it's very lovely. It's and it's all made out thing. of rock. Uh, there's a lot of rock and stone in it. Yeah, I don't know how to describe. I, I'm, nice uh, now I'm just thinking at. of the Flintstone. Like, a, you're describing a resort from the Flintstones. Imagine Flintstones went to like prehistoric Hawaii Las in Vegas? an episode. <laughs> if they went to a like a tiki themed casino that has like a rock name. Yeah, like a rock pun name. Imagine that design. That would be the rock garden at uh, the uh, police academy. No, I can't think of any sort of rock. They went to the Ponga room. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
you're so good at this. In November, I'll come. 19- I'll come up with a good one. I'll forget. Don't worry. Uh, in November of 1937, on the Frogtown side of Legion Park, a devastating landslide set 1.5 million tons of rock and earth down on the Riverside Drive and the, the irony. You play with rock, you get the rock. <laughs> <laughs> and it all started from a crack that was like an inch deep. And after oh, the we're initial be talking slide, about an inch deep crack a little bit later, and that is not a euphemism, I swear. But we will be talking about another crack later. Shadow whoopee. Um, <laughs> so after the initial slide, the earth, all the the landslide continued to creep for days, and it was drawing in crowds to watch to, it. To watch the landslide. It was said fifty thousand people. <laughs> We're like, I got to check out this thing. Like I was reading that like two kids hopped a train from New York to California to see the landslide. In we got to get there before the big finale. Also consider we're talking about the period of time where people were like, I got to get down to Paramount because they have yeah. ostriches and I need to right. see that. Right, right, right. In 1937. And they kept calling it like the moving mountain. Like it's just a landslide <laughs> that won't stop. The jitterbugging mountain. Come, come one, come all. Come see it. Nobody died, but it was pretty destructive nonetheless. But if you walk the outer path... Have I ever taken you on a walk through Legion Park? I've never, I've, we, as we know, I've gone through a parade, but I've never really, we've never really walked around Elysian Park together. We should. It's very nice. But there's a, there's a part where you can clearly see where the landslide oh. was. Like, it's just like a crescent shaped dip and everything suddenly like, oh, that's straight down. That's a, that's a <laughs> vertical drop. In 1941, the naval the tungsten and tungsten re- room. I don't know if that's a rock. It might be a I gas. Don't, I don't know. Yeah. I'm sorry. Did we take geology together or did we take astronomy? Did we take either of the science classes together? We might have taken anatomy together. Now I am making a euphemism. But, um. <laughs> okay, never mind. In 1941, the Naval and Marine Corps Reserve Training Center was opened as part of the New Deal as a WPA project. I've never seen the inside of this place, but apparently it had a rifle range, a pool, and a drilling area that looked like the deck of a ship with World War II anti-aircraft guns and oh, cannons wow. inside. It's pretty. It sounds pretty great. Uh, when was I think it, of this was place, it made of rocks? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, everything here has to be made. It's very Simpson, uh, Flintstones related. It's very uh, Simpsons of the 60s. When I think of the Naval Reserve, I think of three things. When I was a kid, my mom took me there because they were having some sort of like fair or convention thing. The police were having it in the lot. And uh, when I was there, I saw one of the cop cars from the North Hollywood bank robbery, oh, like God. shortly after the rob- <laughs> robbery. And it was, it looked like Sonny's car. And- it looked like Sonny. <laughs> Not even his car. Not even, it looked like they, they massacred my boy. Like it looked like that. It was insane. Uh, the second thing I think of is during the 40s, as I said before, the sailors left this reserve to go fight a bunch of pachucos yeah. during the Zuzu riots, which is a no-no. And the third thing, there's fight a Fight pil- is a strong word. They went to abuse yeah, and... basically beat down. The third thing is there's a pylon on display when you drive by from the World Trade Center from 9-11 mm-hmm. that they have on display. And I never really got that, but I, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it, the fire department now trains there. So I might have oh, done okay. Yeah, because there's a fire department in Sherman Oaks that has like a twisted piece of metal and they're like, this is from the world but isn't the one that's in Elysian Park like that isn't it one of the like like the facade ornament like the one of the things that was on like the main entrance I actually I don't know I didn't look too too much into that piece of metal but um, a different story that's not covered yeah. by Ellie Meekly can we just get into 9-11 just for a quick <laughs> second I it, have a lot of questions about how hot a jet fuel can burn I just want to get into it but now it's named the Frank Hodgkin Memorial Training Facility after a firefighter who died in 1980 so that's the new name of it now continuing on in the story of the developments within the park the 40s in Elysian Park you know those are also when Frank Wilkinson attempts to help the citizens of Chavez Ravine and because of his communist leanings and because the city hates poor people, it was the inciting incident that led to the Battle of Chavez Ravine and the creation of Dodger Stadium. Oh, also in the 50s, we got Dodger Stadium. Don't ask us how. <laughs> if you want to hear more about that, we did an episode up. Root, root, root for the home team is our Chavez 
Travis Ravine episode. And also you can listen to Eric Nossbaum's or listen to, I listen to his book. You could read it if you want. <laughs> uh, Stealing Home, which is fantastic. As socially devastating as the Battle of Travis Ravine was, the new Dodger Stadium put all eyes on the lush little park in Los Angeles. And you and I have talked about this in regards to other city ballparks, but ours is different mainly because it feels like it's in an inaccessible park, although it's yeah. not inaccessible at all. But like mm. you're, you're saying, and I kind of know just from, from legend that a lot of other city parks are just in the middle of downtown. Like it's a bar, a barbershop, a baseball stadium, a, a hair salon, a restaurant. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. it's like just, in, it's in just, Boston. It's like, and, and even kind of in New York also, it's like people mm-hmm. are like, like opening their window because a home run ball just flew yeah. in through there. <laughs> you, you crazy kids, you owe me for this. Jackie Robinson, I told you, if you said one more over the head. <laughs> this is the fourth time this week. Are you going for some sort of record? <laughs> I'm glad you're playing ball professionally, but I, I swear to God, one more ball. Hit a grounder. Uh, when I was in San Diego, I, I like, took the train there years oh, ago. Oh yeah, and I was that's crazy. Around, and I was just like, I, I was following like, just like loud noise and I turned and I'm like, Oh, there's a baseball stadium yeah, like, right yeah, here. The Padres it's, play it's in weird Petco Park right here. The San Diego one's even weirder because it's basically like, it's almost as if there was a baseball stadium in like the Americana. <laughs> <laughs> it's like right in the middle of downtown. It's so weird. You literally will turn a corner and you're like, huh? Oh, oh, okay, sure. Ours sits a little cush in the seat of this old, the, you know, oldest nature park in the city. A lot of people find the park is hard to get to, but I, I, I like that it's in the park. Like I hate how I got there, obviously, but like, I like that it's a little bit mm-hmm. different. You like the way trap- it got there. <laughs> Say it. Say it live. I like that there's a school buried intact under the parking lot. Yeah, that's right. You I'm do. sorry. Um, <laughs> before I knew really what Chavez Ravine was, I certainly love living around the, the corner from a park mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. had the Dodger Stadium in it. Yeah, you love the traffic also when there's any game. When there's Especially even, when there's even opening- a sale at the shop, the amount of traffic. For an area that the City Fathers deemed unauctionable, unsalable, too steep and canyony, by the middle of the 20th century, there was plenty of encroaching of the modern concrete world into the parking. Dodger Stadium, Police Academy, Barlow Hospital, Naval Reserve were all high traffic facilities. So suddenly this serene park had traffic and smog and trash and roads and parking lots had to be built. So that meant more nature was being steamrolled over to make way for asphalt. There were still homes like we were talking about on the in the periphery of the parkland, you know, and the Solano Canyon as well. And there were threats, I think like in the 60s, that they were going to put a municipal convention center on 62 acres of parkland. And after that news came, a group of local activists was formed in 1960. By Grace E. I always call her. It lo- it's spelled Simons. I've always heard it Simmons. So I'm going to say Simmons. It might be Simons. And her husband Frank Glass called the Citizens Committee to save Elysian Park. Simmons sounds so cool. I want to do a whole episode on Grace Simmons. She was a local resident and park user, but also more importantly, she was a former editor and reporter for the California Eagle, which was Charlotte Bass's mm-hmm. publication, which is an African American newspaper. She Grace Simmons was not African American, and it says on the her on the website she won the respect and friendship of Malcolm X, who thought she was. <laughs> the best journalist he knew weird yeah <laughs> i wouldn't kill you in the field of battle <laughs> she was stalwart in her convictions to save the park and aside from successfully keeping the first convention center out she also fought off oil fields and airport and condos this is the kind of person we need like now the kind of like fire and i guess we have a lot of those people but she seemed successful maybe it was the 60s and people were scared of her <laughs> um it could have been also that this woman, empowered was, woman oh no a power suit and a blazer oh no what's she doing with her bra huh? oh god <laughs> this is a woman who stayed 
stayed vigilant, wrote letters, organized groups, and actually managed to save nature in the middle of Los Angeles. She fought hard for 20 years until her death in 1985, and the organization remains active to this day, still fighting off developments in the park. Some of the they're still trying? Are, yeah, they're trying to build condos, zip lines, and two football zip stadiums. Lines? Zip lines? Two football stadiums? Well, I'm sure yeah. they got over that, but... Where? Yeah, where are they going to... Like, it's <laughs> like a slanted football stadium. <laughs> <laughs> but a zip line, I'm not opposed to a zip line. I wouldn't mind zipping across Elysian Park. Yeah, a zip line ain't too bad. Yeah. Um, All the way from the respiratory clinic to the police <laughs> academy. <laughs> a two-mile zip line. <laughs> so they built, in her in her memory, they built the Grace Simmons Lodge in Elysian Park, which is really beautiful. It's a place that I walked past all my life. Yeah, she's when opposed I to development park. unless it has her name on it. People get married there. Shut up. Um, <laughs> and also, there were two structures up on Angel's Point dedicated to her and her husband, done by my kind of pal and kind of neighbor, Peter Shire. Okay. He's an artist. What is he? Uh, the guy you do lowrider magazine painting next to yeah i did it next to peter shire um <laughs> the last of the greatest hits i call i called what we just went through talking about developments the greatest <laughs> hits they're the greatest hits the last of the greatest hits on the reel of elysian park happens on easter sunday 1967 elysian park was the scene of the first jesus came back <laughs> in elysian park cross and all and he needed medical attention and people were just still like oh my god jesus and he's like i need look look Please at my hand me. look at my feet yeah but before one that, nail two feet before Please that can you just sign a few of these crucifixes I have. Elysian Park was the scene of the first love in where some 4,000 unwashed privileged hippies oh, came yeah. to listen to music, oh. dance, drink CBD oil or whatever you do with it. <laughs> Did and they have riders? <laughs> we don't believe in cars, man. We ride clouds everywhere we go. <laughs> 2017 was the 50th anniversary, so they planned another love in, but I don't know how it turned out. Hipsters and hippies, no it's matter bu- how much. a bunch of five-year-olds right now, though. If you want to see footage of the 67 love in in a short film by Les Blank and Skip Gerson, it's out there. It's called God Respects Us When We Work but he loves us when we dance which was released boy, in 1968 oh i can't think of yeah, a hippier a title for hippier title. <laughs> for the hippiest thing i could imagine happening i get you like alan ginsburg and long <laughs> prose but how about keep a title like <laughs> two or three words i don't know i could wrap this up by saying i am incredibly sentimental about legion park i grew up in Elysian heights and yeah, this, this is your park, park it is yeah and this this really big park just outside the city limits was my backyard it made me feel like a wilderness kid even though i live five minutes <laughs> from downtown there's hidden passageways, hidden stairs, beautiful views. On 4th of July, we would drive up to Park Avenue and watch fireworks from Dodger Stadium. I gained a sense of independence by learning to walk the paths alone as a kid, which I should have been kidnapped and killed, <laughs> but I never was. I, those vagabonds who raised me in that park <laughs> taught me so much about myself. I never got into it, but there I've said on this podcast before that affectionately called the hobo trails was the part, the trails mm-hmm. that go alongside the north side of the park, I guess because there are a lot of hobos who would sleep in those hills and wait for the uh, trains on the train yard to come. My best memories of my grandpa are when he'd take me hiking when we waited for my parents to come home and my family would take me on Sunday morning strolls to the park. It's historic and old and beautiful and I genuinely love Elysian Park. Didn't your dad see a dead body in there? He didn't see it, but that was that was of a uh, neighborhood legend that uh, they uh, killed a guy and hung him off the trail in the park. A beautiful childhood memory. <laughs> beautiful. Also, it, Bloody Christmas 1955, I believe the cops took a couple of those guys uh, that hadn't been arrested and beat them in the in the park at night. Um, beautiful legacy. Beautiful. Uh, beautiful legacy. The only thing that would make it better would be a zip line. Look, that's a beautiful memory you just told me about all these. Uh, yeah, all these sweet, sentimental things yeah. that on a otherwise scarred, traumatic life. <laughs> I'm really glad you opened up to me in that last story about how much you <laughs> love grass or whatever you were saying. Uh, 
you CBD you freak. Eat, you eat grass or whatever. But now I'm going to talk about a park that uh, I have no sentimental value about, but I have been there. <laughs> so I love it because I've been there. <laughs> so here we go. What, were you raised in a barns doll? Well, oh one person God. was kind of. <laughs> That's right. We're talking about the Barnsdall Art Park. Art Park? The Barnsdall Aardvark? <laughs> oh, I love that guy. Have you been to this place? Yeah, that's the one on Vermont and Hollywood Boulevard, correct? Yeah, it's the one on the hill. Yeah, I've been there. Okay. Uh, well, I've been there too, and actually I fell in love with it, so. Oh yeah, well I've been inside the Hollyhock House, and they made me wear uh, bags on my feet, and I had to carry them on my beautiful shoes and show everybody. These are saddle <laughs> shoes, and nobody cared because they were kind of Wright would, <laughs> Frank Lloyd Wright would have loved these shoes, and you're making me wear them on my hands. So this place, it's located at 4800 Hollywood Boulevard at Hollywood in Vermont, like you uh, so rudely stole the big reveal for me from. son of the city that's me baby i know cross <laughs> streets and what's on them son of the city go ahead <laughs> illegitimate son of the city so it's in the heart of hollywood east hollywood and it's kind of a like a blink and you'll miss it sort of place if you're not looking for it because it just looks like a parking lot from the street but that area has and always has been a natural hill that just randomly bulged up in that area <laughs> really yeah what do you think that was a man-made hill i kind of did it seems so out of place because that area is not hilly I, I felt the same way. Well, that's part of the appeal of it, but I felt the same way. But I was like, no, you go five minutes north and you're in like True. the Hollywood, you're on the H of the Hollywood sign and suddenly you have this urge to jump. Because <laughs> I can't get any more acting roles. Yeah, it's just sort of a weird, almost like the East Coast was visiting and the West Coast like hit all these mountains. Right, right, the big right. basin that is like the Hollywood area. And then like it, it all just smushed to the side where the Hollywood Hills are. And then right before they walked in the door, a little bulge popped yeah, up. Yeah, and bulge. that's what this hill is. I think of, yeah, that hill is more of like a, a bunching, a bunching of yeah. dirt. The land got wrinkled and this <laughs> hill was formed. So it offers great views of the surrounding area, mm -hmm. which is why in 1886, a guy named Joseph H. Spires came down from his northern kingdom of Canada to become a real estate broker for the Pacific Electric Railway and being a real, 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 real world road rules challenge, being a railroad real estate guy. Wow, that is hard to say. Oh, add this to our warm up list. Oh, yeah. Railroad real estate. Richard the real. <laughs> Railroad real estate ranger. Um, he was able to spot a hill when he saw one. So he bought this little hilltop in about 1890 and the land on top of the hill was already kind of flattened. So his ambition here was, you guessed it, real estate. <laughs> People would pay good money to stay up on this hill with its view of the bigger hills and of the ocean. But why only have a few people live up there buying their ticket for that right just one time? Nay. Instead, he wanted to build a grand hotel on top of this hill so that people would constantly be paying a premium price to come stay and enjoy the view. That's real estate for you. That's how it that, works. Uh, this is like a Los Angeles 10 years away of like there's not even houses. Everything's just like hotels that you live in and you have to pay mortgage every month. <laughs> or, well, you do have to. You, yeah. How often do you pay mortgage? <laughs> you have to pay a rate to live there. I guess. Eh, what's the difference between a hotel and a house? Well, I'll just live in a hotel. What am I worried about? <laughs> you know where they can't catch you is my car. I'm going to live in my car. You can't charge me for that for insurance and gas <laughs> and registration and fixing my tuck. <laughs> um, so he didn't quite have enough money for this plan. So in the meantime, to make some money, he decided to plant a bunch of a sort of tree we all knew and loved back in those days that were all over the area. That's right. Olive trees. Olive trees. Olive trees. Or my Ol martini. 
<laughs> right above the Martini Reservoir. <laughs> olives, because there was already a ton of citrus trees around, so olives were three to four times more profitable than a citrus tree, right. making about a thousand a year per acre over the thirty-six acres that this land covered. So he went nuts with olive trees. Yeah, like that's he, what you, you just, do. You go nuts yeah. for nuts. Yeah, nut. Olive is not, not, not a nut. nut. Why would you think? Why would you think? I'm just saying words. At, at its peak, it had somewhere between one to two thousand olive trees on it, and, and it and it became known as Olive Hill. It was a little. It used to be a little bit bigger than it was, but okay. still, that's a lot of olive trees. That's a lot that. of. That's more tree than hill. Typically, I only prefer one tree hills, but this is a two thousand tree hill. I don't know about this. We we went there the other week, and Melissa was like, "What did the land used to be?" Yeah. And it took so much for me not to say that it used to be an olive garden. <laughs> <laughs> this, this used to be a beautiful olive garden <laughs> overlooking the soup plantation all around it. Can um, you imagine nothing all around this olive garden that we're, we're standing on? Unlimited views as far as the eye could see. So it became a good backdrop for anything religious that was happening in Hollywood because olives, religion, you know. Oh, right, right, right. You, you know, you, 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 Jesus came back at the love in and all right, that. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Sign my olives, whatever we were talking about. In 1916, it was used as the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem in D.W. Griffith's Intolerance, oh, okay. which was the uh, not racist, the, one the woke they, apology the, for It's the Earth one they also stole on the iconography for uh, Hollywood and Highland, I think, or whatever Kodak. Formerly, I Formerly. think they took it all down now. Later, on April 4th, 1920, 10,000 people crammed in there for the city's first Easter sunrise service with the LA Philharmonic, which moved onto the Hollywood Bowl permanently the next year. Oh, so, so the all first one it. was there. Do you like olives? Yeah, I love olives. Oh, okay. So like the yeah. joke I had was someone walking around with a basket of olives, like olives, olives, that you would find that appealing. I, that, what joke is that? This sounds like a great lunch for me. You mean a dream I have every couple weeks? <laughs> yeah, I love olive. I mean, like, I wouldn't go to the Olive Garden that is Barnstall Park right. and pick a bunch of olives and just eat them. But yeah, I love a good olive. Okay. A whole mountain of olives? Sign me up. Continue, please. But not long after this, those spires died before any hotel could even come close to being built. And the hill was sold June 3rd, 1919 to one of LA's great kooky independent woman, Louise Aileen Barnsdall. Barnsdall. She I was know born. nothing about her. Neither did I. I didn't even think, I don't even know what I thought Barnsdall was. I mean, like I, I guess I knew it was a person, but I didn't care. But now, now that there, I know about her, I do care. There's so many things in the city that uh, we talked about this before. I forgot. I was talking with somebody about it. Like you think that the name of something is descriptive and it ends up being like yeah, David yeah. Silver for Silver Lake. Like yeah. how is that not? The reservoir water is silver at certain parts of the day and it's yeah. named after a guy still. I think I thought Barnsdall was like a thing. Like, oh, yeah, like that's a shape that they're making. Like a yeah, cl- close the barns doll. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes you think it is named after a person and it's named after a thing like Chevy Chase. That's you're <laughs> absolutely right. Forgive me for being, you know, manipulated for years by the names in this city and not caring what a barns doll was. <laughs> but I'll tell you, Louise Aileen Barnsdall, she was born April 1st, 1882 in Bradford, Pennsylvania, the daughter of an oil tycoon and a failed artist with depression. She was flush with money and got even more when her dad died, which was the perfect combination to her personality, which had been described as a female Don Quixote. Like she was an independent woman and now she had a ton of money to do oh, whatever right. she wanted. Okay. With. So I'm going to get on this donkey that I'm going <laughs> to think is a horse and fight all of these windmills <laughs> that are actually just olive gardens. A Donna Quixote. Yes. Yeah. She was radical. Uh, she was far out. She was totally bitching. <laughs> she was progressive. And as any good Donna Quixote is, she was an impractical dreamer. She was friends with anarchists and was in some of the most liberal thinking circles of the day. Obviously, she didn't want to be forced into some marriage and kept at home all day making gross 1920s food 
and she had enough money that she didn't need to be forced into a life like that. Yeah. Uh, she was proud to say that there is a new kind of woman in the world today. Her passion was the theater, okay. in particular children's theater. She toured around Italy, Berlin, and London studying theater. She had a boyfriend who also loved theater, who she made clear she never wanted to marry, and then ended up in <laughs> Chicago forming the Player Producing Theater in the Fine Arts Building, putting on children's shows. Cool. With this guy who's like, I love you, I love you, and she's like, I know. I, uh, I love the theater, actually. Are you children's productions? Then I don't love you. What a wild mix of like, I hang out with anarchists, but I love children's productions and plays. Yeah. Not not an unhealthy mix, just a little bit like, it seems a little... Uh, Are you uh, saying that wild. anarchists don't love their children? I'm saying that, like, I want to blow up that building, but also let the kids do it <laughs> and it would be cute but i'll let the children leave first <laughs> she even took her production of alice in wonderland to broadway oh wow but she also made a friend in chicago a friendship with a man with two first names and a last name from a different part of american history that i'm not sure if he's involved with frank lloyd Right. It's not, he does not fly planes. You don't think you could have designed a plane, Greg? A plane that looked like it was built by Mayans? <laughs> uh, you know, he's never proved me otherwise, I guess. I guess you have that going for you, that he hasn't proved that he wasn't one of the three brothers. Hey, Da Vinci was trying to build helicopters or whatever, <laughs> so I think Frank Lloyd Wright invented a plane. At least blips. At the very least, he tied a bunch of balloons to a lawn chair. <laughs> uh, so Frank Lloyd Wright, architect, genius, combative, petulant little snot. He was just the type of person person that Aileen Barnsdall was drawn to, even if most of the country wasn't at the time, because he was involved in some crazy personal dramas, like his mistress just got murdered. There seems to be weird stuff that happened in Frank Lloyd's right Wright's life, right. but I'm not. I'm not here to blow up his spot. I'm not here to do my expose on Flank Lloyd Lloyd Wright. You almost got it. It's so this close. Is... You're so close to having it. You don't even know. But Barnes still, she just ate this stuff up. She she loved this sort of controversy in a person. So right. she approached him with an idea that had been stewing in her head. She wanted not just to create her own theater, not just to create her own theater company, but to create her own theater commune, like what she had seen in Europe or like we've seen in Suspiria. Like, where, <laughs> like, like just a. That's a how build. I know what they're talking about. <laughs> That's oh. how I, there's so much red up there. She wanted she wanted a place where artists lived and trained and worked and everybody like that's what her dream was. And everyone is badly dubbed. That's what they're looking only for. the Italians. <laughs> Jessica Harper speaks fine. This is what she wanted, and she felt that right was the correct guy to design it. <laughs> she was sick of Chicago, so she didn't want him to build it there. And she said New York was the worst possible place for creative people. She felt that if the theater is again to become a great force in the world, it is going to happen here in America where we have freedom of thought and action. And that too is why my theater must be in California rather than New York. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, I don't know, the new, I always think that. Yeah, we put the new in New York here in <laughs> California. Um, so Wright agreed to do it on the condition that she would leave him alone while he was doing it and wouldn't bother him. Uh, let's put a pin in that. <laughs> uh, while Wright started scribbling away on his tilted desk, Miss Barnsdall came out to LA to get settled and opened up the Little Theater in the Egon Egon Dramatic School at Ninth and Figaro, right by the pantry. And oh, okay. put on she put on very avant-garde, experimental type things. She even got a congratulatory telegram from Charlie Chaplin for one of the plays she did, but she only had a few seconds to read it before it went off the screen, and you didn't have time to finish <laughs> reading it. You could buy another ticket. Buy another ticket. 
pay more attention. We're just going to start replaying it as, <laughs> as soon as this one's over. There's only four movies. Time. And combined, they last for like 70 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it makes me so nervous whenever I'm watching a silent movie and a titled card comes on. Even just like a biopic and they're yeah. explaining like the year was 1972. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God. Oh I my God. <laughs> Why is Nosferatu carrying the coffin? Oh crap, I missed it. Uh, I got to read it four times before I understand anything. So please don't let it go away. Could we rewind this rare film reel of W.C. Fields' first ever movie? And then it just goes up and flames. I know that every time we play it, it degrades a little bit. I just need to know what he's saying. So she also met a guy named Robert Ord. Dinsky, who became a director at her theater and decided he had some quality sperms. So she intentionally <laughs> got pregnant from this guy and then kicked him to the curb because she wanted a baby but didn't believe in marriage. She wasn't interested in him. She just wanted a baby from him. So on August 19th, 1917, Louise Aileen Sugartop Barnsdall Jr. was born and the Louise Aileen Barnsdall that wasn't described as candy gladly <laughs> raised her on her own. In 1917, which is great, like yeah. she, she was vocally had a baby out of wedlock yeah. and also was not interested in ever having a husband and was vocal about that in 1917. That's crazy that like that's a The wa- baby's name is Sugar Top. It's crazy <laughs> first of all that Sugar Top your mom chose a, a sexual harassment slur by Mel Gibson to name you. <laughs> a wild progressive someone that would have been burned at the stake in 1917 is just like a modern woman now. Shunned in 1917 burned in the stake in 1817. <laughs> <laughs> like every hundred years it's a little bit a for, little bit better single women yeah now back to the other man in her life frank lloyd wright mr wright actually um his request that she not bother him while he was designing her hippie artist commune she bothered him <laughs> a lot she kept adding new ideas and new things she wanted built but the general gist of what she wanted was this a full-on theater commune it would have had housing for the artists a theater for them to perform in a movie theater a restaurant stores, public gardens, a kindergarten, a waterfall that ran down to Vermont, and the olives that still existed there would be incorporated into all of it. All of it. Is all of That's funny. That's really cute. It's funny how I'm a hippie with no... Oh, and she does have money. Okay. She got a ton of money. She got a ton, that's right. The, she got she, a ton yeah, of money. She's a rich hippie. She's a, a rich... <laughs> it, it's just... It's bizarre because you. I always think of hippies as like, I found this land and I took it well, and there's a got a bank, but she's a rich hippie, so it's like, build all these things that'll look natural. She's like Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> these peace and love, let's just say it, freaks, <laughs> long-haired freaks, but she has the money to make good things happen yeah okay that's a which that's, boy if if there were only more people like that and less people like terry silver from karate kid <laughs> you yeah, you want to bring up karate kid guess what i'm gonna bring up captain america which i've watched a bunch recently i bring you want to start let's start bring up terry silver one more time bring up uh budget steven seagal one more time so it was going to be called the olive hill project with 19 buildings total and be like a, another kind of hilly venue in the same vein of the hollywood bowl which she helped get made in the greek theater mm-hmm. which were also being built around this time so it would have been sort of like to go back to Easter Sunday, the Trinity. This would be, would right. have been the Holy Ghost of the outdoor venues on a hill in Los Angeles. We loved our religious stuff on a hill back then. It's just like we did. I mean, where else are you gonna like all religious stuff happens on a hill? I guess so. You, the, Were you oh, not baptized on a hill? It, it was a, a dungeon. Um, there was a. <laughs> it was a cult. dark. There there were black candles yeah. and 
there was a crucifix, but it must have gotten knocked over and it was upside down. But a woman gave birth to a jackal. I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> and everything. I breastfed off of the jackal mother. I, people, then we went to the park to celebrate. People were speaking. It was like a Latin class or something. But uh, what I'm saying is like lo- lots of hillside religious things. You know, the we got the ocean. Not everyone gets the ocean. We got one. Yeah, you want to take us to the yeah, ocean? I, be like, I mean, most of the Bible happened. Most of the Bible happened in the desert. Desert. Yeah. What in the desert? <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. I mean, there's the Sea of Galilee. Oh. Yeah, I don't know why more religious stuff doesn't happen by the beach. I don't know. Moses Take is going to split the water the up. River. Yeah, that's just Billy Bass. That's Billy. The father, the son, and the Billy Bass. <laughs> Take me to the river. Anyway, the centerpiece of all of this was going to be the new home Wright was going to design for her to raise her daughter in. The Hollyhock House. This was Frank Lloyd Wright's first project in Los Angeles. And was because really? of that, yeah, because of that, it was his first foray into a whole new style and direction of his designs. He wanted to establish with this house a new local style for Los Angeles that took advantage of the LA climate by incorporated very open air designs and gardens. He believed that in California, a house should be half house, half garden. And the old olive garden setting was perfect for that. That's a that's a great approach. I like that. Yeah, a lot. that meant using a Japanese technique of dissolving barriers where parts of the house like transition smoothly from indoor to outdoor places. So like you'll be walking through your kitchen and all of a sudden like how did I get in the back alley? Oh, so there's like just missing walls or what? <laughs> what I'm trying to say is he never finished it. What I'm saying is there's a wing of this house that has a lot of dirt in it. Basically, he's describing like how elves live. <laughs> yeah, I meant to bring this up to you, but Melissa, I don't know why this made me so angry, but she got it into her head that hobbits were like five feet tall. Like she thought hobbits were five feet tall. And I was like, what? They like, wish. It's funny that you got mad at her. Because <laughs> I thought she was joking. She's like, no, aren't they just like short people? I'm like, yeah, they're really short people. Not like someone who's just a little small. But it's not like Gandalf was like, we need a secret weapon of someone who's really small and can sneak around Mordor. Get me someone who's slightly below average male height. Anyway, <laughs> I brought up elves and talking about... Uh, Anyways, I just like to hear the things that you choose to get mad about and I just find them funny. That's all. So the lack of any cohesive style that existed in LA was also a blank check for him that he used to create what he called California Romanza. Romanza is like a thing in music that kind of means like the freedom to make your own form of music. So this house, like many of the other houses he did in LA, combined Japanese style, Mayan, Aztec, and Egyptian elements into one kind of crazy design. Yeah, which is a thing that we get checked on by certain architectural people is like, you have no style, you you just, it's just a mishmash, but like that's the style. But I kind of like that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's the style is the mishmash. And then when I see like, why can't you be more like Cape Cod where every house is wooden and white? Yeah. Like you don't like driving through Beverly Hills and it's like a castle next door to Zorro's house. (laughs) And then it's a witch's house. I I love that. Yeah. And you take, you get lost and trying to find a street and 20 minutes later, you're like, are these cabins? This house was kind of like the ground zero for California modernism Mm -hmm. architecture. And if Frank Lloyd Wright was the father of that style, then Aileen Barnsdale was the mom or at least the person paying him to be a dad to this style. Um, she's the female presence in the household. She's the uh, Alice, the, which she would hate to be compared to an Alice. But the house had 17 rooms, 
and seven baths. It had rooftop terraces, a door that weighed 500 pounds, oh my God. S- stained glass from Judson Studios, a huge stone bas relief above a fireplace that had a moat filled with water around it that looped around to the outside. There were 15 animal enclosures on the path from the garage to the house that ran under a pergola. And there seems to have been a petting zoo in those cages in the 20s. And I'm not sure what was in there, but I did get confirmation that there was a llama. Whoa, taco llama. The taco llama. This the was the original llama. taco llama. <laughs> the llama here? He's going to fight all the camels that don't belong here and all the buffalo that also don't belong here. Uh, and they're all confused of why there's palm trees. <laughs> I think I know where I am. Let's ask the ostrich who also doesn't belong here. Wright was working on the Imperial Hotel in Japan at the same time as this. So he incorporated another Japanese technique of compression and release, which is also my exercise routine. (laughs) So I just tense up a lot and then relax. I'm like, wow, I burned a lot of calories. (laughs) Um, My nose is bleeding. That's pretty cool. (laughs) So when you walk in there, the hallway is narrow and the ceiling is low. And then Uh it slowly opens up into the living room when you get this huge blast of open space in there. It's like the descent. And then you feel really good when you're in the living room. So this was the first time he did also textile block, which was when you put fabric like patterns into concrete blocks like what you see on the Ennis house like that right, design right, yeah. so this was the first time he did that and the what, de- and sorry I'm sorry what, what's yeah. that called textile block okay. it's designed as if it's like a tapestry but mm-hmm. it's it's actually it's a block cement, cement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it feels just as good to lie down on, <laughs> which is not good because tapestries are also not I, like rugs <laughs> Greg, don't get me started on rugs. <laughs> I only know how to cut them. All I know to do is sweep stuff under them. <laughs> the design on these textile blocks for this house was Barnsdall's favorite flower, the hollyhock. Right. Hence the hollyhock house. It's kind of a geometrically deconstructed depiction of a hollyhock that's kind of H.R. Geigery. Like yeah. He, I saw like his notes on how he like came to that design and it's it's really weird. I think they have a, a thing there talking about the design and the shape of it and it's like, oh, this is if a robot made a hollyhock. It would yeah, look basically. A bit like this. Yeah. The geigerization of a, a yeah, plant. It's, yeah. it's xenomorphic. <laughs> he had started making designs on the house back in 19 but construction didn't start until 1919 and was finished in 1921 and it was impressive even i mean i imagine even then but like even then (laughs) people were like even then when it was brand new did it look good some called it the acropolis of los angeles but it was also a necropolis of sorts in that it was where aileen barnsdall and frank lloyd wright's friendship went to die oh my god why Uh, to start like i said she broke the one rule he laid out of not bothering him with constant suggestions and she came to him constantly with new ideas she wanted crammed into oh the designs. God. She had a lot of artist friends so of course they all wanted to leave their fingerprints on this new masterpiece that an actual genius was making. Yeah. So Wright had zero respect for any of her friends. He oh, said that- the hippies that wanted to live in a commune? He didn't this, this accomplished man? <laughs> does the anarchist want two chimneys? <laughs> um, oh, does the waterfall not go down the right way for the anarchist and her <laughs> unemployed friends? Yeah, all of these people who are living off of their parents' Time. Um, he said that they knew as much about building as Sodom knew of sanctity. <laughs> I'm going to have to take his word on it. <laughs> That's pretty funny, e- though. Let me explain Sodom and Sodomy to you, right? Just really quickly. Do you have pictures that, are, just real quick? That's funny that he ragged on them that like that. Why would he like these? Yeah. Who likes getting suggestions from people who don't? You know, it's like at an open mic and some drunk guy sitting at the bar. I have a joke that you could do yeah. at the end of it. At me, the yeah. Frank Lloyd Wright of comedy. 
uh, in that most of my jokes are really leaky and fall apart after a little bit. <laughs> Plus, she was constantly going off to travel around the world on a whim because she had millions of dollars. Right. And he was spending most of his time building that hotel in Japan. So the two were both frustrated at each other for not being there when they needed them to uh-huh. like discuss this house. Wright didn't even get why she wanted a house since she was never in one place for too long. He called her as domestic as a shooting star. Oh, um, this guy's good with imagery. He, who, who's, this? Uh, who's this? Raymond Chandler? Why don't you put that bird on a textile block, on a concrete <laughs> block, and uh, I'll appreciate it. In about 90 years, we'll write a whole book about just that. Yeah, and then Terry Silver can come and karate each other. <laughs> uh, and Barnsdall was annoyed because it was supposed to cost $30,000, but with all the delays and extravagances of working with Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright, I cannot pronounce this guy's name. It was going to end up costing $150,000. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were fighting constantly, and eventually, with a lot of the work already complete, she fired Frank. She could. She Frank Lloyd fired him. You could fire Frank Lloyd Wright if you're Alien Barnsdall. You could do whatever the hell you want. You could be friends with anarchists. I'm a millionaire, and I'm not quite sure what city I'm in right now. But you know what? You're fired. She's like in the middle of Mumbai, (laughs) sending a telegram. You're Frank Lloyd fired. Uh, I mean, also consider he wasn't like. Frank Lloyd Wright. Like it wasn't, yeah, that's what I'm getting he wasn't at, that guy at the point. Like he could be fired still. <laughs> it wasn't like you're not firing George Clooney from the set of Ocean's <laughs> Eleven, but maybe from ER. Th- this firing though was actually a kind of history making moment because to replace him was Frank Lloyd Wright's second in command, Rudolf Schindler, who had been brought over from Europe to work on this and ended up having a huge impact on LA architecture after this project with this being his big break. So he this created another great architect in LA history. And not only that, the guy working on the gardens was another European upstart getting his first big break in America, Richard Neutra, oh, who wow. Schindler brought over. So like three major LA architects got their start Jesus. in LA on, on this house, which that's is insane. Wild. From this kooky, eccentric millionaire that's just like, build me this, build me that, as, yeah. as like a Doppler effect as she's going off to Tahiti. The Hollyhock I house- want another bathroom! <laughs> the Hollyhock house is the yard birds of architecture. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of the uh, menudo of... <laughs> But then Barnsdall got into a big fight with her friend who was supposed to run this commune once it was finished. And between that and the delays and the price and the basically falling out with everyone who she hired to work on it, Barnsdall just lost interest in the whole thing and abandoned it in 1923. So the only parts of this plan that were completed were the Hollyhock house, the garage, and two guest houses, one of which was eventually demolished. Okay. So of this grand European Suspiria witch's <laughs> brew of artists and anarchists, only four of these 19 buildings were built. Plus, she never actually lived in the Hollyhock house because she hated the Hollyhock really? house. She said the roof leaked, the rooms were too small, and she needed a team of children to open the heavy-ass doors. Like she, <laughs> she didn't like any of it. So with this grand vision of a hilltop people from hair all living together and putting on plays down the drain, Barnstall decided to just give all this land and all the buildings that had been built on it to the city on the condition that it be used as a library and a park and a public arts center. Again, like we need more rich hippies yeah we, what uh what year was that that she gave it to the park uh, like 1923 i think it was well okay. we'll get to when the city actually accepted it because oh, right. this lady had a stink on her that the city did not want to be a part of because she was like i said if this had been 200 years earlier she would have been accused of being a witch like right, she's right. she's just a progressive, progressive woman she stated in the deed for it that it should forever remain a park for the enjoyment of the community in general and that no buildings be erected except for art purposes she felt that no country 
country can be great until the least of its citizens has been touched by beauty, truth, and freedom. Unless all three radiate from this little hill, it is as nothing. A generous gift with a noble purpose that in a sign of a relationship to come, the city ignored for (laughs) about three years until they finally said, fine, we'll take this beautiful park and house for free on December 23rd, 1926. So for three years, she's like, please take this, do something with this. Please, my gift is so generous. They're like, Uh, could someone taste it first? It might have anarchy in it. Um, You have to accept my friends with it. Uh, (laughs) On one condition, they get to tag it up. Um, (laughs) And the park was renamed Barnsdall Art Park, not after Aileen, but after her dad. And of course, her, her, her relationship with the city after giving them her land was, you guessed it, contentious as every relationship is with her she felt they were doing such a bad job of managing it which they were that she demanded the outer rim of the land back so that she could live on it and keep an eye on things they did and she had a non-frank lloyd wright house built at 1610 north edgemont where she lived with her daughter sugar top with whom you guessed it she fought a lot <laughs> and her 12 cocker spaniels oh my god uh, that's which, great the arguments she had with those 12 cocker spaniels and she was outnumbered <laughs> she was also an unapologetic social justice warrior like we talked about she was just progressive as hell she would always have billboards up on the area that was still her land in the park that would advertise her various causes some of which were obviously good but then i saw a picture of one where she wanted to free this guy who bombed a parade in san francisco in 1916 so i don't know what that was about which the uptight city government of la was not happy about since these were kind of on their property and they were saying like give black people rights and they're like oh not on on (laughs) city property (laughs) they were also upset with her because she was a pacifist and demanded that no war memorials be built in the park either. Okay. She also put up fences around her part of the property so that the kids that were playing on the park, because it's a hill, she was afraid that they were going to roll down the hill into traffic, but the city demanded that she take them down. And then when she did, all of her cocker spaniels got loose Um. in the park. So the city then kept charging her with not leashing her dogs. (laughs) It was like an odd couple thing, but with one person being the government of Los Angeles, like the the Felix Unger is the government (laughs) of Los Angeles. She has also you know she would have been burned at the stake she also has a witch's temperament <laughs> she, she does and she also had this really big cauldron that she would make soup in. <laughs> but also like not to hammer down on the witch thing too much but it also has that feel of, like every neighborhood has like oh, that's the witch's house she has like at the edge of this beautiful park that's for like the a city, witchy like a witchy <laughs> like not that saying that the house looks like a witchy house but there's a woman there who has her, her dogs she owns the property yeah. and her dogs keep and it's covered around. in ivy and, the, <laughs> and the, like one part of the roof is caved in and she's coming outside with like a hunchback and a ward on her nose. I believe everybody should have the right to abortion. (laughs) Um, Have you seen six of my dogs? What? How many do you have? Have you seen 40% of my (laughs) dogs? They're missing. The FBI even kept a file on her because of her radical views and the company that she kept. So the city let out a sigh of relief when she died in that house on December 18th, Mm. 1946. And they could go back to neglecting the beautiful gift (laughs) that she had generously given them, this this wonderful woman. Back in the park itself, after she had given it to them, the California Arts Club opened up their headquarters inside the Hollyhock House on August 31st. 1927 and put on art shows in there using Wright's geometric Hollyhock design as their logo which is pretty cool. Uh, They also built the Little Lattice Theater which was an outdoor kids theater in 1927 but throughout the 30s and 40s the city was really underutilizing the land and in the early 40s the California Art Club left the Hollyhock house and all of the buildings just started to fall into disrepair after that. These beautiful Frank Lloyd Wright 
white buildings got covered in graffiti. Sometime in the 30s, some people broke into the Hollyhock house and stole a bunch of the custom-made furniture that oh Frank Lloyd Wright had designed. And then sometime after World War, the bigger one, the entire custom living room set was stolen and people still don't know where these are. So there could be people that are like watching The Bachelor on this Frank Lloyd Wright designed couch. And it's me and nobody talks about it. <laughs> it started attracting a lot of homeless people once the depression set in and by the mid to late 40s, it had basically become like a, a shanty town up on on the hill. Even in the 80s, it had a bad reputation with the always progressive LA Times saying that the isolation appeals to the homeless seeking refuge from the meaner streets below and to some homosexuals looking for a nighttime trysting spot. Again, shadow whoopee. Uh, and the Hollyhock house, like Aileen Barnsdell said, was kind of a piece of junk. Beautiful, but dead on the inside. Those precast concrete blocks that Wright used to give it that Mayan style yeah. are known for breaking down easily and right. leaking a lot. And the hollow clay tiles and plaster he used because of the budget restraints were just earthquake fodder. Yeah. Like those are basically what you should use to tell if there's an earthquake. Like if these <laughs> things break, there's an earthquake happening. So it had to constantly be repaired. And if it wasn't, and it wasn't, it really started to crumble, this house. And this wasn't unique to the Hollyhock house. All Frank Lloyd Wright houses yeah. are apparently like this. Really? There's one story about one of his houses that the people he built it for called him and said that water was leaking on them at their dinner table. And he told them, well, then why don't you move your chair? <laughs> wow. And I could design that chair for you. Yeah, for I designed that. <laughs> I designed that leak. Uh, that's what you were saying earlier that she didn't when she didn't live in the Hollyhock house. When I went in there, I couldn't imagine anyone living there. Like it's beautiful, and I I couldn't yeah. see myself. Well, yeah, yeah, it's like a theory of what a house should be. Like I'm yeah. not going to live in this artistic equation for the rest of my life. <laughs> it got so bad that in 1946, the city was going to demolish the Hollyhock house, but his son Lloyd Wright led a renovation to save it. That same year, the Barnsdall Art Center opened there. And then in 1948, the Los Angeles Municipal Art Gallery, which claims to be the longest running institution in L.A., devoted solely to exhibiting art. And the guy who founded it was accused by the city council of being a communist for using <laughs> public money for art. Uh, they moved into it. And this marked the beginning of a turning point for the park towards something like what Aileen Barnsdall intended it to be. Like they were focused on showcasing the works of local artists like a young Ed Rusha. But more specifically, they focused on promoting the art of women and people of color but they also had blue chip touring pieces like Van Gogh, Rembrandt's Picasso, Toulouse-Lautrec, Jackson Pollock. They also started offering art classes in 1967 in their junior art center of not just painting, but photography, music, ceramics. Then in 1971, things took one step back and two steps forward when they demolished the art building they built and made a better permanent one. And also like Aileen Barnsdale always wanted, a theater that could seat 299 people is cool. permanently there. And these new buildings fit in well because they were in inspired by the plans flank frank oh my god i don't know what it is you hate uh, architecture i guess uh, this guy his this buildings guy? are just so flimsy uh flimsy lloyd wright that he <laughs> had made for the park like these new buildings are based on designs he had made around this time the hollyhock house was also briefly considered as becoming the residence for the mayors of los angeles like every mayor Whoa. would live up there or if not they also considered it as a reception hall for visiting dignitaries okay that's not a bad idea if they like leaky dinner tables <laughs> 
<laughs> and we do. The park has been very hard to maintain and the control of it has also been split between a bunch of different departments. So it was kind of too, like a too many cooks situation right. with people constantly fighting over it. So the place has gone in and out of being properly cared for for decades. The Hollyhock House had to be restored again in 1975 for $500,000 and then the Northridge earthquake wrecked it again in 1994. So in 1995, they enacted the Barnstall Park Master Plan, which kept the Hollyhock closed until 2005, only to get another huge restoration in 2008, which closed it again until 2015, which brought the house back almost entirely to its original glory with as much original furniture as was left and then recreations made from old photos. Uh, They even accept donations if you have any books that are from the 20s and 30s. You can donate them and they'll put it into the house library. Oh, wow. Uh, which, I mean, what's in it for me? Like, those books are pretty valuable. <laughs> I know I haven't read them, but they look really good on mine. The spine looks really good amongst my other books. So. Touring the place is tricky because there are a lot of ADA issues uh, with the place. So tours are kind of limited and sporadic. None, nothing's happening right now, but you can have, they do have a virtual tour on the website. The Barnsdale Olive Grove Initiative has also helped revitalize the remaining olive trees in the park. Uh, by 1992, there had been only 90 trees left, but now they brought that number to, I think, something like 400 oh, with wow. about 19 of them being those original trees from way back when this was an olive garden. <laughs> <laughs> they even hope to someday have community harvesting days where you can go and collect some olives. So we're going to go and I'm going to shove olives down your throat and you're going to you like, like it. like them. I'm going to be there with like, like an armful of martinis. Put it in yeah. this one. <laughs> These uncured olives <laughs> just straight off the tree. It's like, like eating a cacao pod. <laughs> <laughs> Today, the park is only about 11.5 acres. Uh, the perimeter of land that Aileen Barnsdale lived on is now mostly a shopping center, which may or may not still be owned by that family. Sugartop might have the rights to it. Uh, and it's run by the Community Arts Division of the Cultural Affairs Department. But one of the most notable parts of this house is the recognition it's gotten despite being so neglected for so long. In 1963, the Hollyhock House was made an LA Historic Cultural Monument. Eventually, the entire park got that designation. Then in 1971, the house was put on the National Register of Historic Places. Then in 2007, the entire park was made a National Historic Landmark. But then on July 7th, 2019, the big one happened. The Hollyhock House, one of only 10 Frank Lloyd Rice House, right, Rice Houses. I don't know. I, I like every single time I mispronounce it differently with, I don't know, there's rice involved now. <laughs> so this is one of only 10 Frank Lloyd Wright houses in LA. And it was lumped in with a group of buildings across the country called the 20th Century Architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright. And it was designated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, which is impressive on its own, but even more so when you learn that there's only 24 UNESCO sites in the entire United States and only three of them in California, the other two being Yosemite and Redwood National Park. Wow, really? So Frank Lloyd Wright's house, it's a World Heritage Site. So this is a city park for sure, but it's the kind of park where this architectural wonder is just as important as the nature in the actual park itself. So take that nature. Man can make things just as nice as what you can make as long as it's being paid for by a rich woman. <laughs> That's incredible. That's one of those parks that kind of snuck up in my life. I, it was not something that I may, uh, frequently had heard about or even the Hollyhock House until I was maybe after college. People were like, yeah, we're all going to Barnsdale. I'm like, I don't know what Barnsdale <laughs> is. Or, and they're like, oh, we, had, we love the Hollyhock House. I don't know what that is. <laughs> it was not something that like 
you grow up knowing that, like it, it's as you dig into LA history a little bit more. No, yeah, most people it. have probably never heard of this place, but you know, we're really cool. And in the end, on the <laughs> end, so we know, but it's one of the, like, I, I went there a really long time ago and I remember thinking like, Holly, I didn't even know what a Holly, I, until I started doing this research, I didn't know what a Hollyhock was. So I was like, well, Hollyhock, what is this crazy house on the hill? Hollyhock. Wow. <laughs> as you're just like tossing yeah, peanuts into your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what and, this is. And I'm wearing a reporter's cap. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a nice little city park. It's it the incredible views of like Hollywood and to the ocean, really. It's re- it's a really nice place to visit. And if you can ever go inside the Hollyhock house and put the tissue boxes on your shoes, I recommend it, I would yeah, assume. I've never I been there. I say do it. You get, I think when you're up there, you could see the Ennis house too. And you're like, oh, that's the other one. <laughs> oh, there's no. another. There's do another. they communicate with each other? <laughs> Is there a zip line it? between the two? Every you know, park needs a zip line. You're absolutely right. There should be more zip lines in the city. They're just like, so you can go from one rooftop bar in downtown to the next one. Don't let go. <laughs> uh, I believe you have our next park for us. I do. I do. Um, I think I've already, if you were paying attention to my segment at all. And I wasn't. Why would I? I'm looking at the numbers. I'm looking at the the mixer do its thing. I'm keeping an eye on our Nielsen ratings while you're talking. <laughs> and then I send you a document later saying what words you need to cut out because they don't <laughs> test well. I'm going to be talking about a little block in the middle of downtown known to locals and everybody as Pershing Square. The two <laughs> I like to call it. Pershing Square. Pershing Square. Me. The two segments I had this month, Elysian Park and Pershing Square, both claim to be the first park in Los Angeles. It's ridiculous. Like, literally in the same LA encyclopedia on different entries. Well, this is the oldest park in LA. Well, this is the oldest <laughs> park in LA. What? Elysian Park has a little bit more credit to it since it's a park. <laughs> and it's, it was established formerly 20 years after Pershing Square, which is where the uh, like a lot of the confusion comes in. If you're just looking at dates, Pershing Square is first, but one of them's an actual park. Um, There's grass in there, isn't there? There was grass in there. They shoot game grass, on. don't they? <laughs> game <laughs> on. Okay, Pershing Square, then known as La grass Plaza. Grass in the park, game on. Pershing Square, then known as La Plaza Abaja, was first dedicated as a public square in 1866 by Mayor Cristobal Aguilar, who's important in LA history. First, he was the last Mexican mayor under American rule, which I believe means, I think, this mayor was was a Mexican resident when California was part of Mexico and then he became mayor. I think that's what they mean by that. He's certainly not the last Mexican mayor. <laughs> of Mexican descent, I mean. I mean, for a long time. For a long was. time, certainly. <laughs> certainly when maybe the book I was reading. Maybe second, second to last. Second, in 1868, Aguilar vetoed a proposal to sell off the city's water rights to a private buyer, which would have put a lot of cash in the city's pocket, but long term would have stunted the growth of the city at a crucial point. So yeah, he did that. He's responsible for making sure we still had water and we were able to become a real city. Uh, third, he was the mayor during the Chinese massacre. Oh no. Oh. Th- these are the, the things that when you look up Aguilar, this is what comes up. Like Elysian Park, the five acres that became Pershing Square could also be traced to the original Spanish land grant when they were like, yeah, fine, make it a Pueblo, send a postcard. And as Elysian Park has the story of Spanish explorers camping on the hillside of North Broadway, the area that became Pershing Square also had, was significant to travelers. To this particular party of explorers and truly all that followed for a century afterward, the path they took which is already like a well-trotted trail by the Keech and the Chumash. They would send them south down Broadway, as we know it, I think, and then towards the city center. They knew it as Broadway, too. They, they also knew it as Broadway. It would send them into downtown. Have you downtown. seen Bye Bye Birdie? It, <laughs> it was just a bird back then. Though. Are you good? 
Um, hang on. I think lyrics from Bye Bye Birdie are coming into right now. Hold on a second. <laughs> so this trail that they took that was already like a well-trotted trail for the Native Americans, they went down this path, and then there's a fork in the road. One fork would lead north towards Coenga Pass, towards Encino, San Fernando, Ventura. That was El Camino Viejo. If I read correctly, which I'm not sure if I did or not, that fork in the road was a grassy area that is now Pershing Square. As expeditions would follow this road, they would often camp on that grassy patch. This road was used until like 1890, and it was, among other things, the main road residents would use to go to the tar pits to get materials they needed to make roofing. <laughs> like this is, So this was a popular little yeah, fork in the this road. This is the crossroads where you learn to play the guitar. Yeah, uh, but there's one catch. <laughs> you gotta pave this park over <laughs> so that there's no grass. You Game only, off. There's only one catch. You could only play Grateful Dead songs. Oh no, I don't want to <laughs> learn. I don't want to I don't want to learn. Uh, I want to keep my soul. In 1849, after America takes over California, Edward Ord of the Ord Survey, same survey that sets aside Legion Park as an ungivable, unsellable parcel, lists Pershing Square as Block 15 on the survey. I know this all sounds boring, but when we talk about LA history, the pre-America, pre-Mexico things that remain today are true Los Angeles. It's like talking about the river or the mountains. It's especially important in 2022 because of how much of what we thought LA history was was being ousted and changed. So Pershing Square, this spot is important, even if yeah. I don't like that spot. Yeah, which is what, what I kept telling there. to you and you kept saying, but it's not a park, it's a metro stop. It's put- the worst metro stop. Not <laughs> only really is that is metro the- stop, it's the worst one. <laughs> it's the one that I will go all the way to Union Station and walk and back walk to get backwards. <laughs> I was just about to say, I've, how many times have I got off on 7th Metro? I'm like, all right, time to walk. To- <laughs> I got to walk to Pershing Square now. I get to the library. <laughs> Something like Pershing Square goes through so many changes in the 20th century, but its importance and longevity speaks to its historic value, even if I don't like Pershing Square, which I don't. Anyways, in 1966, Mayor Aguilar dedicated the square as a public park. So officially on the books, this is a public park. We're making it a public park. If I read correctly, creating this public space served two functions. One was so the public square could protect property values on the streets that faced the square hill, fifth, sixth, and olive. So it's a park made for financial, for real estate. I guess so nobody would build anything there. Okay. So we got to keep the real estate valuable. Let's make a park. Let's make a public park and that way people can congregate there and then shop at our shops or use our services on these block, on this square. If that's what it takes, maybe we should put a bunch of Lululemons around (laughs) all national parks and then they'll stop getting, they'll stop shrinking them. Um, Oh, great idea. And you know what's weird is that you love Lululemon. (laughs) I don't genuinely do. I love Lululemon as a reference. You do, which can only mean one thing. Deep down, you love Lululemon. And I stand Um, up and I'm wearing the tightest yoga (laughs) pants you've ever seen. Let me just reach over the screen and grab this. The other purpose, that was one purpose that they, they, it served to make this a public park. The other was to create a space for Americans who didn't want to be in the city's main plaza, the area that we understand to be like a barrow street. So this is White Power Plaza. (laughs) But they had a Spanish name for it. Um, who, who can still be white, but different. <laughs> not the white that white power people like. Well, it was initially called the La Plaza Baja. The lower plaza was because it was the plaza a little bit away from the other plaza. <laughs> so Pershing Square would be a quote unquote nice public park for quote unquote nice people and represented a <laughs> southward expansion of the Anglo-American business districts opening up in that part of downtown in the southern part of downtown. And I'm not quite sure what the square was like in those days other than a ground block for camping that was probably nice but improvements on the square were made in the 1870s it was a lululemon the, the biggest lululemon i've ever seen trees were introduced trees were introduced uh finally in 1870s <laughs> citrus and cypress trees were planted in the and the area was beautified it's even said that 
at some point around this period, a horticulturalist named Roundhouse George <laughs> Lemon, L-E-H-M-A-N. No. Lemon. Come on. Lemon. I don't know which to believe less, that his nickname is Roundhouse or that his last name is Lemon. <laughs> the Roundhouse makes more sense. The Lululemon is just a, it fits today because you brought up Lululemon out of nowhere. <laughs> well, that's what I'm talking about. His daughter's name is Lulu and he started <laughs> the first Lulu Lemon. His daughter's little Lulu, the comic strip. It's like a raggedy end. <laughs> Lulu's Lemons was the original store. So this George Lemon, this roundhouse guy, was owner of an iconic but long gone round house. It was a house that was round. The okay. porch wrapped around it. You see, it was, what I was thinking was like, he's a hortic- yeah, he, he was a horticulturalist and the way he got fruit off a tree was a roundhouse kick. And that was like his signature. He was always about a couple of years behind Johnny Appleseed. And when the <laughs> apples were ready to play, oh, when those two roundhouse got, kick them. When they finally matched those two up in Madison Square Garden. Oh my God. And then Paul Bunyan was the referee. <laughs> Anyways, roundhouse, lemon. Everyone thought he, well, he thought he he owned the land that was Pershing mm-hmm. Square. So he started planting trees there and watered them for 20 years, taking care of. So either people assumed that he owned the land or he told people mistakenly, I own the right. land. And you apparently, squat and lie long enough. No one's no one question. You're going to make me go all the way to City Hall and look into this? How do you think I'm still in my parents' house? Right <laughs> <now>? <laughs> Government can't get me here. I'm in my parents' house. That's a legal loophole. And apparently, when the public library came by years later to set up a shop at what became Pershing Square, they were initially talked down because they heard that Roundhouse own the land so they're like oh never mind this guy owns it he did it and the city official had to come out and make it clear nobody owned this is a city property this is a public park no one owns the land he doesn't this even is... own those trees he planted them here they're ours, <laughs> they're now. ours now you don't even own the water that you were using <laughs> did you get that from uh, Zanha Madre well guess what city water and that nickname give it back <laughs> okay we'll have to get into roundhouse and his roundhouse and the what was called the garden of eden we'll have to get into that later in another episode but i'm very okay. curious about this yeah. george lemon guy save it so in the 1880s the old villain another old villain fred eaton <laughs> city engineer owens valley destroyer mm, future right. mayor yeah. created the square's first official layout it's hard to keep track of the series of names that the square goes through in the early years because i can't keep track of when one took place and which ones were official so it was la plaza blah la plaza abaja <laughs> plaza first. blah blah the plaza abaja first then it went to public square city park sixth street park st vincent's park and los angeles park and that was just like that's not even like the last three names it gets like that's just <laughs> like a series of names attached to this square <laughs> one site said that it was central park in the 1890s and another said it became central park in 1911 i don't know but at some point it becomes central park right um, in the it, center of los angeles and it kind of like i'll get into the idea of central park in new york and central park here but there's a really great blog called restore pershing square so their website restore pershing square.blogspot.com but they have the original layouts if you want to check out the layouts of fred eaton and then what eventually came later the 1886 eaton plan eaton has this and lemons this is this this sounds like lemon. one of the fairy tales plays that aileen barnstow was putting on it sounds like a 60s cartoon the 1886 eaton plan has the square seem much more green there's a lot of like kind of wavy lines that go through and they meet in the center point but there's like grass patches with trees obviously Um, game on and there's four entry points from each corner of the block then a lot of like you know like a wiggly path across botanical green patches i even read that at some point i'm not quite sure when the zanha madre the irrigation patch that led from the river through the plaza ran through the square as well or even emptied into the square which sounds really lovely it was called a serpentine promenade he had wooden benches i believe he created like a bandstand as well so it was like a nice public park around the square in the late 19th century you could also find like small like you look 
at photos, there's like small wooden frame houses. There's these two big ass churches, St. Paul's and the First Baptist Church, and then the St. Vincent's College. This was around. But if you look at photos, like there's some structures, but it's like empty beyond that. It's Did it used wild. to be bigger than it is now? I don't think so. Maybe, maybe I keep thinking of it as this square because of what that's what I understand it as. It could have been a little bit bigger, but yeah, not that much. The way I'm imagining it now, like that seems like a lot of stuff to cram into what I know to be Pershing Square because I could run across Pershing Square very quickly and I do. And I do and the cops have no idea and they, they're too scared to run after me through Pershing Square. That's how scary it is. I, I recently walked through there because I'm like, you know, maybe this isn't as bad and I'll talk about that experience a little bit later but it's a little bit bigger than I thought. It's a city block so a city block can be pretty big. Yeah, this is pretty so. big. A revision of the plan in 1904 seemed to expand the walking space and shave off some of the greenery, a trend that would continue for the room. So it's getting smaller. Uh, the grass anyways is getting the the green is getting smaller grass is smaller game is less i love it when you try to come up with a snappy zinger like a phrase and like people are going to remember this idiom forever and it's like nonsense from 1910 to 1911 during one of the many la real estate booms architect john parkinson's moved forward with a redesign of central park done in a formal i believe that who it's named after park oh my central park parkinson's Parkinson's. i think i figured this case out see uh, but you know what this is another crazy we've got a lemon we've got an eaton eaton Mm. lemon and now we have park This is, and what I'm trying to tell you is that we both now have Parkinson's. This is my usual suspects ending. I was just looking at images, and I I didn't actually do any medical report. Yeah, eating lemons and looking at my medical report (laughs) and being like, I think I can lie enough to come up with nine pages. John Parkinson's moved forward with a plan for Central Park, done in a formal Bose art style. Parkinson's art. Is it Bose? Bo. Bo. It, see, Bo. In, uh, in French, the when it's a letter like that, a soft letter at the end of a word and a vowel at the beginning and the next one, it uh, enchaînement. <laughs> it links together. Uh, I, I I would never listen to this podcast. Get in line. <laughs> <laughs> People line up there to not millions listen to of this. Them. Parkinson is a big name in iconic Los Angeles architecture. We've talked about him hundreds of times and I never remember his name. I'm always like, oh yeah, he's the one who built the memorial. Memorial Coliseum and City Hall and Bullock's Wilshire and Union Station, among many other LA iconic buildings. Now, even as a layout on paper, that this redesign looks beautiful. It has six entry points on the plaza, four corners, then a two on the opposite ends, Oliven Hill, with a gazebo in the center, along with central three-tiered fountain, decorative statues strewn about the park and then balustrades which was those decorative like stone railings that are really beautiful the park looks lush with greenery parkinson had tropical game trees game on buddy parkinson had tropical trees and shrubs planted it seems genuinely like a like an urban park like that a, a real city would have it seems like a, a microscopic central park in new york it's it's beautiful in 1918 one week after the end of world war one in what was called a fit of armistice day fever oh my god the square was renamed. People grabbing nurses left and right. <laughs> the square was renamed in honor of General John Blackjack Pershing, commander oh in chief of the American Expeditionary Force, and a commander. We're gonna rename this SEAL Team Six Park. <laughs> I'm so happy that we're out of those trenches. He was so he was the commander in chief of the American Expeditionary Force and also commander of a punitive raid against Pancho Villa. So there's that. Uh, his nickname Blackjack derived from his service with an African American regiment early in his career, which is interesting, but. I'll also circle around like is that nickname a put down i don't know it sounds like a nickname they would maybe 
give themselves oh the maybe blackjacks. I, I hope so that's the best <laughs> case us, scenario let us be hopeful in let's this be situation. hopeful that blackjack was a name that he's like he wore proudly like yeah, yeah that's me baby after the park was renamed pershing square they added a statue of a doughboy which is not what you think it is it's a, <laughs> it's a world war one soldier it's not a, a chubby boy in buster browns i would love for there to be a giant statue of the pillsbury doughboy <laughs> in, in pershing square i'd love to make that happen uh unfortunately central park in new york gets him because he did attack the city they loved him so much he was the real hero in that. that's story. the real the stay puff marshmallow man is a real hero of this story the statue was sculpted by humberto pedetri so if anybody likes that statue which is still up at pershing square that's who sculpted it at this point the modern city is growing all around the square where photographs from the end of the 19th century show like i said a scattering of structures now by 1910s you'd be hard struck to pinpoint a larger patch of green in the area that wasn't pershing square there's some houses you know that some people lived in downtown there's big ass churches that still exist in the center you know downtown center from the last photo but along with that are some imposing buildings like the pacific mutual life insurance building that that's up now on the website of the restorer pershing square they have a short film from 1916 called shoes by lois webster that was filmed at pershing square and you get a good look and feel of what the square and the city were like at that time it's very it's very different unrecognizable <laughs> this is truly the heyday of the park from the 20s to the 40s the city becomes a modern city in the 20s and pershing square is an oasis of nature in the in the heart of downtown like i said before like a micro new york central park the modern city is built around this block that is as old as spanish los angeles that's uh, it's just so weird to me that that was like the like you said the crossroads of like yeah. am i gonna go to the valley or am i gonna go Little to dodger beach. stadium yeah exactly <laughs> in 1923 the Biltmore is opened right beside the Pershing Square on Olive and becomes an iconic addition to all photographs and postcards of the square. So every time they have a photograph, so many photos of Pershing Square also like, eh, what about this? Tim? Like they always try to squeeze the Biltmore in. Alley Public Library, as you had mentioned before, briefly has a post there at Ingest. Pershing Square. The park was active with business people and tourists, newsstands, families out on a stroll. It, it was like a public park in the middle of downtown. It was like, a that was it. Another fun thing I learned, there was a long stretch. They say from the 20s to the 60s, Pershing Square was the premier homosexual spot for cruising for a cruise known as The Run. Yeah, I've heard about this. Where it was, I had no I, idea. I, I, think, I think we talked about this briefly once where it was, if I remember correctly, basically like a secret map that gay men had of like, there's a dark alley here there's yeah. a place here where you can say this word and they will give you this yeah, i think this was part of that it, it was it was yeah. on this run the park was open and centralized meeting location before being out was acceptable so you could just meet up there and the run as of course as cruising implies there's a movement and a path because Along, when the police show up you run uh on the path was the central library the bar at the biltmore and the subway terminals buildings bathroom is all huh. part of this stretch of home what they do activity. at the library photocopies they check out four dvds at a time (laughs) it's said that a renewal project we'll talk about in a little bit that removed a lot of dense foliage 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 a lot of dense foil foliage <laughs> i can't frank lloyd foliage uh, yeah frank lloyd foliage a lot of removal of the greenery and foliage was a deterrent against men meeting other men for purposes of sex foliaged again that makes that landscaper homophobic. Uh, and because Persian Square was the centralized location, not only in the center of downtown's business district, but also like the, the quote unquote center of the city, if we have a center, which we kind of don't, it became a meeting ground for many groups of people with a purpose. It was a well-known spot for public preaching and orators, which was kind of a buzzkill. LA Times writer Timothy Turner wrote, 
and this I'm just reading his entire quote. All varieties of radicalism and of religion are shouted to the high heavens. The squares human fauna have so abused the right of free speech, giving offense to those who, having business, use the square as a shortcut, and to those who wait for buses and those who live in the hotels or have offices in the buildings facing the square. So, like the this was a part where I, I can I can stand on my shoebox and uh, sorry I can stand on my soapbox and give my big speech and everybody I can has stand to hear on me. A shoebox, but you, you're not going to get as many listeners. My shoebox is a soapbox, and a lot of people <laughs> don't knock me for that. Recycle is all I'm saying. All I'm saying is you can use the same box for a lot of different things. But it became kind of like a buzzkill spot because like you'd go there to eat your lunch or as a tourist to go check it out, and you'd have to hear about like communism is pretty cool. Like <laughs> I out of here during the not great while de- I'm eating tuna yeah. fish. <laughs> during the Great Depression, Prudence Square became the gathering place for crowds of unemployed workers. And after World War II, the park became a place where homeless people would linger. The trees at Persian Square were said to be rats' nests, and the pigeons were also overpopulating the block. So, like, through time, through usage, it became kind of like a bummer place. Like, it was just somewhere you, you wouldn't go anymore because it was so centralized and it was like a, just a public park. Anybody couldn't go there. No one could stop you from being there. And suddenly, like, you didn't want to go to Persian Square. <laughs> because of that, it fell into disrepair. So, with that and calls from local businesses, the square was being pushed to be renovated. And then uh, and the renovation seems like a bit of a downgrade. Much of this downgrade was due to <laughs> no. a huge... No, how? From what you've described to me with all the lush foilage Fo- and, foilage? and the, and the re- serpentine paths <laughs> compared to what it is now, Greg. <laughs> Greg, no. no, no what, what's Where's the downgrade? Much of the downgrade was due to a huge new renovation because they were going to build a subterranean parking garage under Pershing Square, which would require a complete upheaval of the grounds. By the mid-40s, downtown Los Angeles was fully realized as a commerce center, and with all the influx of people doing business there and having businesses and shoppers, the city needed 10,000 additional parking spaces and thought under Pershing Square would be perfect for this. I still don't really understand why they thought <laughs> under Pershing Square. Because I guess their, their thought is like, we still want the park, but we also really but it need... Won't, if we put it under one of these buildings, we're afraid the building will collapse. But if a yeah. park falls on you, I mean, what's the damage? One mention of why they wanted an underground parking lot was earthquake proof. I'm like, but you're getting closer to the earthquake. But I guess like... <laughs> It must have been a thought they must have had it like let's just build a parking garage on top of this park someone must have proposed we can build a parking lot here and another person like we can't it's a beautiful city park blah 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 like ah we'll build under it and then there's no argument left like oh I, I wasn't prepared for him to go there from the articles I read about the renovations and the garage either no one cared or the papers didn't bother publishing comment about it like, as far as I could tell in, in the papers no real pushback Pershing Square is almost an afterthought you know there's even a joke in a newspaper clipping that reads Pershing Square is notorious as a a raucous rocket raucous i don't know sorry you're having trouble with vowels today and i'm having trouble with consonants today let's just stop let's just learn how to read english yeah let's just do it Pershing square is notorious as a raucous forum of catches catch can oratory during the process of construction the members of myriads of debating societies who would hold forth there must become displaced persons however no one except the members of the atheum will object and they can hire a hall so I don't think I understood anything of what you just said. There was so many 19-whatever slang that you just used that I do not understand. Basically, the only people that are going to miss this are the people who take this public 
Park as their like auditorium to give their big speech right. about so the communism. We only the and they can rent a hall. Weirdos, yeah. And they can rent a hall if they, they want to. They can go cry to Alien Barnsdall up on exactly. the Olive Garden. She'll listen. One person to mourn the loss in 1951 was when the City Park Garage project was completed was Timothy Turner, who was the writer earlier. And he pretty much lamented the loss of this park, but it was sort of overly sentimental. Like, what about the benches? And what about the palm trees? And what about... But it, it wasn't like a hard-hitting... Like, we're losing something important. Yeah, exactly. It was not... It was very sentimental and not hard-hitting. Like, what are we going to do when it's all cement and there's no trees in downtown? There was no... Nothing like that. Because the new Pershing Square had no earth under it now, it meant all trees had to be potted above ground and flower beds were installed, (laughs) giving a different feel to the park altogether. Suddenly, like, nothing's growing from the ground anymore. Everything's potted. Everything's above ground. And it just... Like, the pot is ceramic. It's also, like, kind of stone. Like, there's just so... This whole story is making me think of, like, the science fiction stories where like they go to a planet and everything used to be like people and animals used to live here but then we rebuilt them as robots and then the robots took over and there was no more nature left and everything yeah. like this is grass made out of titanium right yeah it feels exactly like that it feels a lot like the Lorax and a Joni Mitchell song except this was never paradise <laughs> they paved paradise and put under it a parking lot <laughs> <laughs> and then try to put paradise back on top and like what's wrong with it it's almost like the soul of the park had been killed when they did this and again as we said earlier the removal of dense shrubs and trees was a crime deterrent whether that crime was selling drugs or being gay which was a crime at the time obviously but now the exposed feel of Persian Square made it look hollow like there was there are no trees there's no beautiful there's nothing there's nothing here like it was just flat grass some trees but they're above ground some flower beds but you can see right through the other side and it was a kind of a potted fica in the corner exactly yeah (laughs) looking at photos of what it used to look like and then this after the revision yeah all the word only word that comes to mind is soulless and kind of sterile like it you can see through the park so clearly now it's not like a cute little like jungle it's not like maybe that's why it feels so small to us yeah you can see the biltmore from exactly the the trash can that they put the money in in point break (laughs) (laughs) point break or speed speed Mm. is the one come on What's the difference? <laughs> I didn't. If, truly, but still though, like you know, they're, they're at this time after the renovation, there was still was some grass and trees, and the design felt. I don't know if you've walked through downtown, some of the buildings downtown, but there's some like skyscrapers. <laughs> there's some skyscrapers on Grand that have like a little grass patch next to them. It felt a little bit more like this. Like even that mm. is a relief. From that point on, it really didn't get any better. Like for forty more years, it went unused and unloved, falling into further disrepair. It was a park where homeless people slept. I'm, I'm glad they found a place, but also like that's not anywhere tourists want to go and if tourists don't want to go there then the cities could not care less about something <laughs> i have family members who grew up in the 60s and they fondly remember angels flight and grand central market and broadway the library but no one has fond memories about pershing square <laughs> like it never comes up they never tussled around in the foliage then as a homeless problem in la got worse the overflow of skid row as i said would end up at pershing square in 1984 with the eyes of the world on los angeles for the olympics the city officials rushed to do something about pershing square but all that was really done was they cleaned it and they potted some plants and replanted some stuff. That's how unloved this old city park was. And it wasn't like they were sweeping the square under the rug. Like, don't look at like Like, there was olympic celebrations at pershing square <laughs> and all they did was wash it and yeah. pot repot the plants we the killed bil- half the rats for you china for you, for Japan, you. For you. yeah we killed half the rats which still is 90 million rats the biltmore even got a million dollar renovation in preparation for the olympics but this public square was like this is closed it's the louse <laughs> maybe if we hold the cameras a different way yeah after the olympics rolled through town and we got all the nice murals of my youth the city finally decided that a 14 million dollar renovation to pershing square was 
was needed. As Wayne Ratkovich of the chairman of the Pershing Square Management Association said, we have concluded that the successful change for Pershing Square will require a radical and dramatic transformation, not a modest one. I agree that what we got was not modest. Um, <laughs> the 1994 renovation was a collaboration between three established designers, architect Ricardo Lerogueta, who designed uh, Casa Montalban for Ricardo Montalban in the Hollywood Hills. Landscape architect Lori Olin was the second person on this. She was, uh, she'd worked a lot of private residential gardens and public parks and stuff. And artist Barbara McCarran, who worked on several site-specific art pieces in LA, including Heyday, which I believe was part of this renovation. And to say the renovation was bold and radical is very true. And from this point on, no one would confuse Pershing Square for being a park. It is not a park. It is a square. Gone was the illusion of nature. The renovation was incredibly urban and modern. As one LA Times write-up from Leon Whiteson put it, hard surfaces dominate and planting is a formal background rather than a central motif. Now, I'm going to verbatim read what Whiteson describes because he does a much better job describing. If you've never seen Pershing Square, this is all the renovations from 1994. The division between the two halves is marked by a 120-foot tall purple shaft, a freestanding shaft which mimics a traditional Italian campanile Campanile. Uh, I can only help you with French words. Sorry. Has a dramatic cascade of water flowing down one sloping side. The northern half of the square bordering 5th Street includes a raised section intended to double as a outdoor stage for public performances. Planted with stately Canary Island palms, this area is the square's highest point. Facing this raised section is an informal amphitheater of a long, low concrete benches designed to accommodate an audience of up to 2,000 people. The benches are laid out in an abstract pattern in a carpet of grass. Beside the amphitheater is a small palm-filled courtyard where all the square's historic sculptures have been relocated, including a sculpture of Beethoven. I never looked up why he was there. Next to the Pillsbury Doughboy. Yeah, next to the, he is next to the, the Doughboy. The southern half of Persian Square revolves around a circular pebble tidal pool fed by high narrow aqueduct that connects with a central tower. Several times an hour surges of water flow from the aqueduct to fill the pool then drain away. The southern edge of the pool, parallel with 6th Street, is ringed by a curved concrete bench with a high back. The park bench is inscribed with a quote from uh, Carrie McWilliams' book, Southern California Country. The quote ends with the offer of a ringside seat at the circus that is Los Angeles. Two stucco pavilions painted a vivid yellow line the square's Olive Street frontage. One pavilion houses a Los Angeles Police Department substation. The other accommodates the access to the subterranean garage and an outdoor dally operated by the Biltmore Hotel across the street. The dally will be supplemented by six kiosks selling a variety of ethnic food and coffee. The square's Hill Street frontage is screened by a line of short pink columns and a tree-shaded promenade line with planting. Familiar trees, including jacarandas, coral, cedar, and orange, have been placed throughout the square. It's said a lot of these features and art pieces allude, um, this is not in his piece, they are designed and allude to the history of LA, like the, the groves of orange trees, the stylized earthquake fault, which I think is the orange-purple shaft, the Campanile, and then the fountain represents the aqueduct that brings water to Los Angeles. This is the Persian Square we have now. Uh, is this? It. This is all there right now? A lot of the art pieces, the concrete pieces are there. I don't know how much of the grass patch but all yeah, this is there because as you're describing that i'm like wow this sounds pretty nice and then i remember what i remember pershing square to look like i'm like they must have abandoned those plants that's all there as far as i can tell that's all there okay. the purple shaft is there that's a long purple i don't even know how to describe it other than it's just like a long purple thing that protrudes from the ground if you watch the movie speed you'll get a pretty good glimpse of it <laughs> the new pershing square was met with mixed reviews and i certainly get or it point after break. or point break it was met with mixed reviews and i certainly get it after doing research about the history of the park and now watching that 19 16 short film the renovation seems like almost like an artist's harsh commentary 
about urbanism or about downtown Los Angeles. It seems like commentary. It seems like I can speak to my own feelings about the park's design by starting off that I don't like being there. Like I feel so exposed. It's almost like a psychological thing because like there's all these tall buildings around you, but you're still always like under the sun. You know what I mean? Like it's always like exposed and yeah. kind of hot there. Well, it feels no like foliage. There's no foil foliage. Well, there's no foil. Um, it feels like you're under a microscope and these artistic movements of the Campanelli shaft and other things create these weird angles. My brain... Be- comes uneasy because of all of these things <laughs> and being around all the tall buildings it's not awe-inspiring i feel that it feels foreboding like it feels like psychologically <laughs> like i'm being watched and towered over it and it's a wide open space but i don't feel welcome there isn't that what you want in a park we we need to keep moving this is not a tourist spot but like a lot of downtown since bunker hill was removed it's another area that feels soulless even after the recent revitalization of downtown la over the last decade pershing square continues to be what i see as an unfixable problem recently though i like i was saying i took a walk through pershing square to get a feel for it instead of just like hurrying past it. There are some homeless people, sure, and get good for them for finding a spot to not get harassed. But there's also like downtown residents walking their dog through Prison Square. There's a young guy near the Beethoven statue who was learning how to play trumpet and who's just playing trumpet out loud, like because you could do that there. There's a family who clearly was tourists who were sitting on the 6th Street side eating lunch together on a bench. Kids were playing in the small playground. I can sit here and bitch and say like no one loves Pershing Square. There's nothing to love about it. But it's clear that some people do, even if they don't know or care about the history of the space. The space is still serving its purpose to some people as a public park like a public square yeah i still don't like pershing square but it, it doesn't mean that i can never like it like the pershing <laughs> square restoration society they're trying to push for another revitalization another renovation of the public park and their aim is to restore the 1910 design from john parkinson that made it look like it did from that short film with lush palms with you know rats nest and a fountain where rats bathe i like this idea <laughs> a lot because maybe all the park needs is a facelift from more than 100 years ago to kind of give it its soul yeah. back there are a lot of issues that would plague it like any other thing in downtown and this ain't if it's Instagrammable, it has a chance of fighting yeah. a little bit longer. And if tourists want to stop there, it has a social momentum. It's, that's It's the new trying to put expensive buildings around a park. Like if you can put something that has like, it's a picture. It looks like you're in the middle of a donut. Exactly. Then people will protect this land at all costs yeah my wrap-up is like i don't like Pershing square but i could like it if it looked like it did a hundred years ago i certainly would like it a lot more. yeah you're not deleting its phone number from your phone. exactly i'm not trying to ghost I mean, it you never know it you yeah, know. Well, in the no. morning you might want yeah. to go down to pershing square so you talk about a park that they rebuilt it with better technology they made it a more perfect park they had a, where the nothing tail. grows yes they <laughs> had the technology so i'm going to take us into our last park i'm going to drag you into our last park of uh, Uh, of the day. Goldie, Catherine, Solo. These are all Hans I'd like (laughs) to talk about. But for today, we're going with another Kenneth. Kenneth Hahn, the man, the politician, the state recreation area. (laughs) Just so we're clear, this is the story of the Kenneth Hahn state recreation area in Baldwin Hills. Right. But to start, we have to go to the way early days in a sleepy Pueblo town of this park when it wasn't a park and it was just land, which is really just a park that doesn't have a government ID badge. (laughs) It's the only difference between a park and just stuff. The area is called Baldwin Hills because way back in 1875, our old pal Elias Jackson, Lucky Baldwin, bought all the land, uh, seeing absolutely no value in it other than grass for his cows to graze on. (laughs) Hell yeah. And then, uh, then he died in 15 years years after that his family discovered oil on this land like some regular hillbillies from beverly and it was <laughs> off to the races which is also a place he built in <laughs> Anita that land was and is located on top of what's known as the inglewood 
oil field. Okay. In 1924, Standard Oil's Discovery Well Number One on this field gushed. Greg, it, it just gushed. gushed. <laughs> no, gushers sound really good right now. And by August 1925, there were 147 wells there across 1,180 acres on this land, which Damn. helped make Southern California into one of the world's biggest oil producers. And we've kind of talked about the oil days of LA before, and I'm sure we'll do a better job in the future. But for the sake of all the, of this story, all we really need to know is that oil and the money that came with it during these days was so important to the city that they had zero regard for the environmental nightmare that oil was creating right. around town. Okay. And that's something that's said at the beginning of uh, Road Warrior, I think. It was an oil nightmare. <laughs> it was the best of days. It was the oiliest of days. <laughs> oil was being illegally dumped into the sewers and the ocean off of the coast of LA was just slick with oil. Oh like that's God. what that's what Los Angeles, it was the reverse road warrior. <laughs> it was too much oil. And that total disregard for the environment went hand in hand with how the city felt about parks at the time. Right. The general sentiment by the LA government around this time was that LA didn't need parks Stupid. because the land was beautiful enough as it was. And it'll stay like that for Forever. Is that a Lululemon? <laughs> there were mountains, there were beaches that they were dumping oil into. And compared to the cities of the East Coast, each house had its own yard, which was basically their own personal park. So nobody really needed to ever leave the house right. to enjoy nature was how they felt. Like, yeah. What do you need to go hang out in some communal park <laughs> when you can go to your little four foot backyard patch of dirt that you have? <laughs> Everyone has a small patch of oil in their backyard? An oil derrick in every backyard. <laughs> That's my promise to you, the American people. You can just plug your car straight into this oil, Derek. Just fill it up for the whole family. And drag it on a trailer behind you. Then in 1930, some seer of the future predicted that someday all the natural wonders of LA would be paved over. It was Joni Mitchell. With developments. So maybe it might be a good idea to try to preserve some of this land. And that was when the LA Chamber of Commerce brought in the legendary landscape architects, Frederick Olmsted Jr. and Harlan Bartholomew, like we once talked about to come up with plans to preserve the natural beauty of the city. They okay. brought them in. They're like, this is, I foresee bad things coming. <laughs> Let's try to stop this now. There's a bad moon coming. And that's another musician. They recommended a lot of things, including preserving the Baldwin Hills area, but it was the depression and there was oil there and everyone wanted money. So they ignored this. We're not going to, you want us to stop making money? <laughs> it's the depression. I don't know if you're getting it, but what we're depressed about is money. Is the light. And you know what makes us happy is oil. <laughs> Drinking um, it. But after a few decades, the city couldn't ignore how much it had expanded the whole right. entire city and grown. And what that meant, not only in terms of what they had to provide to this growing public. Between the 20s and 50s, a lot of houses were being built in the Baldwin Hills area surrounding mm. this oil field. And it was becoming something of a fashionable neighborhood. Then when the restrictive housing covenants were struck down in 1948, all the middle and upper class black families that had been forced to live in South Central for all these years got out immediately. Right. And many of them moved to the nearby Baldwin Hills, which was infinitely nicer and they mm -hmm. could afford it and it was legal and they could be there. Yeah. So they went there. Why all good they? reasons to do that. No, I'd like to stay in South <laughs> Central. <laughs> I see it turning a tide eventually. Even nicer was that all those nasty white people got scared and left. So they had this whole place mostly to themselves. There was mm -hmm. White flight, just leaving Baldwin Hills, it became a black neighborhood and they set up a really nice community.
community that by 1980 had kind of become the cultural hub of black Los Angeles, Baldwin Hills. But back in the 1940s, when this neighborhood was just starting to change, the city was thirsty, Greg, and not just for oil, not just for some unrefined oil. It had grown so much, once again, that there wasn't enough water for everybody Uh once again. Oh, once again. Hello, Owens Valley. Why aren't you picking up? Why don't you pick up your phone anymore? Owens Valley. We just want to borrow something. Yeah. (laughs) Their answer to this another dam even though one of their other ones had already collapsed oh my god to make this they needed a relatively undeveloped part of town that was also at a high elevation so that the dam could let gravity ravish it and baldwin (laughs) hills had two things going for it one hills yeah the northern ridge of baldwin hills is 500 feet above sea level which makes it the highest point in all of southwest los angeles okay hills second because of all the oil production it was pretty much undeveloped except for a bunch of oil derricks because drilling for oil was more profitable than real estate was at the time right okay so all there was if they were to take this land they would have to just get rid of some oil derricks rather than we've got to displace four thousand people right okay that makes sense so the dwp bought part of this oil field in 1947 and started construction on one of the most perfect metaphors for global warming the city has ever seen. It was open for business in 1951, this dam, just 3,500 feet northeast of the oil field, and it was 232 feet tall and 650 feet long, and the city had a little bit more water for the time being because of this dam. But soon there would be too much water. Oh Greg. no, what happens? The city of the damned. If the hills of the damned. Yeah, the, the hills, hills have dams. <laughs> the, ba- <laughs> the city of the Baldwin Hills of the damned. Thank you. Um, a catchy title that is going to shoot us to the top of the <laughs> iTunes charts. In 1954, the oil wells in Baldwin Hills had started providing diminishing returns. Okay. It was harder to get oil out of them, so Standard Oil needed to come up with new ways to just squeeze the land dry. They just wanted everything. And they want all of that dinosaur goo. They just wanted all of it that they could get. What they came up with was called high pressure water flooding, which is where they'd shoot salt water into the wells to push up the oil. And this is basically the same thing or an early form of fracking, I think. I don't really know what fracking is, but it seems like it's basically the same concept, except maybe a little more refined. Okay. Rather than just like stuffing salt water in a (laughs) a blunderbuss and shooting it into the earth. (laughs) They tried this out on a few of the wells and it was getting good results. So in 1957, they did it to all the wells on their oil field. Great results for Standard Oil. And as we all know, when the oil company wins, we all win. Right. (laughs) This episode brought to you by Exxon Valdez. (laughs) (laughs) Look at how all shiny the animals are now. (laughs) Just when you thought a duck couldn't get any cuter. (laughs) What's great for oil company is great for Dawn soap (laughs) sales. Unbeknownst to them, all of this drilling that they had been doing for years had forced the underground oil pool to expand out of the area that they originally knew it to be under and the reservoir and dam being so close that meant that it expanded underneath the dam without them realizing and now this new method of pumping drained these new pools and that left an underground maze of empty caves right underneath this dam we're getting back to the descent basically it was just like like an ant 
hill. Like when you yeah. look at one of the ant things and you're like, oh my God, why are they bringing all the corpses down there? Like all those <laughs> little tunnels. That's what it became like under the reservoir. Really? These changes started becoming noticeable on the surface as early as 1943, but they all just looked past it. Of course, but they brought it up and then Chevron gave them like $4 million. And like, I <laughs> oh, I seem to have, oh, I'm just going to leave my briefcase full of $4 million just yeah. right here. Just- I, I must have been wearing my dams about to explode glasses <laughs> when I looked at it today. Uh, I'll put on my regular glasses. I'll put on my <laughs> Chevron glasses. But by 1957, these changes had clearly created a new bowl shape on the land that was yeah. not normal with the ground sinking as much as 12 feet in some of the places. Oh that same year, a surface fault started to show which was about to make things even worse. This was the Newport Inglewood Fault, which was the same one that had caused the Long Beach earthquake in 1933, but Mm -hmm. this particular part of it was previously unknown to them, and it was only 1,350 feet west of the reservoir. But Standard Oil knows best and decided it wasn't strong enough to do any significant (laughs) damage, so they ignored it and started doing even more water fracking, and between 1957 and 1963, eight more fault lines became activated because of this new water water flooding method but they were just making the profit margins greg i finally can add another floor to my yacht and you're (laughs) gonna tell me i have to stop my yacht has its own yacht now i can't even my son's yacht i can't even get that off the dock yet because it's so big it's illegal the yacht that we go to the bathroom on (laughs) needs new floor it needs new marble floors but the method was it was working so they opened up even more wells and pumped even more water down there meanwhile in the neighborhood around the dam they kept building more and more houses and more and more people started moving in like progress just kept pushing forward despite the fact that they were all like balancing on a like a rickety ladder (laughs) but then in 1963 troubling stuff started happening like there was water and oil starting to leak out of the ground but standard oil said man it's fine (laughs) then came and you know that when i give you a specific date it means something i was thinking the same thing today if he gives me (laughs) month day year i'm like oh someone's not doing good. <laughs> so then came December 14th, 1963. Uh-huh. Uh, it was a Saturday at 11.15 a.m. Even workers, worse when you give me the day of the week. Okay, it's bad when I give you month, day, year. Day uh-huh. of the week, this is something that a lot of people suffered. But when yeah. I give you the time that it happened, <laughs> this is a catastrophe. <laughs> Unavoidable catastrophe. <laughs> at 11.15 a.m. Oh my God. Workers on the dam noticed that the water in some of the pipes had started draining and that there was also a small crack. There's that small crack I promised oh, earlier. Right. Not just saying that because we're on Zoom. A, a small crack on the dam had formed. Okay. What they didn't know at the time was that some sort of minor earthquake had collapsed some of those underground caves that had been formed by the oil drilling right underneath the dam. They didn't know that, but what they did know was that something bad was about to happen. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, immediately yeah. they started the emergency draining of the reservoir, but that process took 24 hours and they knew that this was going to burst long before 24 hours. They put out an evacuation order for the entire neighborhood in the path of the reservoir and the police went door to door warning people and within four hours almost 8,000 people all the way up to Jefferson were evacuated. KTLA news helicopters were circling overhead covering what was happening which is believed to be the first ever airborne news coverage ever done on TV and they captured live 
what happened next. Here's a second time. At 3.38 p.m., that little crack gave out and turned into a 75-foot-wide hole in the wall of the dam, and out came 292 million gallons of water rushing out 50 feet high, wreaking destruction through the entire neighborhood, gushing... Here's the gushes again. Gushing north between La Brea and La Cienega and heading west into Bayona Creek. It ripped through houses. It caused mudslides. People were stuck on rooftops. It flowed for 77 minutes until the reservoir was completely empty. (laughs) And what it left behind was 65 homes destroyed, 210 other homes and apartments damaged, six inches of mud on the ground, and five people dead. A couple of whom apparently washed into the store at La Cienega. It was now Obama Boulevard and is now at the Target. That's what I read. I don't know if that's... That's what I read. Like a a body or two just like came in on the water into what is now Target. One guy was killed in his car when he got washed into a ditch and one guy had a heart attack when he was driving and a 50 foot wave of water came at him. Understandable. There was over $12 million in damages, some of which the DWP compensated victims for. But don't worry, the oil fields were completely unharmed. I was so worried that our profit (laughs) margin would be dented. Yeah, they built an even stronger dam in front of the oil derricks just to Uh, make sure. Yeah. But if it hadn't been for the people acting fast to evacuate the neighborhood, the death toll would have been catastrophic. Like Mm -hmm. all those people could have died if they hadn't acted quickly. Dorsey High School became the base for people looking for help from the Red Cross, the Marines, the Salvation Army, and the Boy Scouts who all came to help, which is like little Marines, really. Um, (laughs) I've said that often that I want to join an adult Boy Scout, but it turns out it's just the Marines. (laughs) From the hills of... (laughs) They don't sell cookies. Those are the Girl Scouts. I was going to I was going to make a whole American anthem song about Girl Scout cookies, but sorry, America. It's the Boy Scouts. All they make is popcorn. In 1966, L.A. sued the oil companies responsible for this, which was settled out of court in 1970 for a mere $3.9 million. Oh my God. But this did lead to the DWP once and for all phasing out urban reservoirs, replacing that water supply with underground water instead. So now this land that used to be a cow field, that used to be an oil field, and now used to be a reservoir just stood unused Mm -hmm. until five years later, a man happened to be driving down La Cienega and thought to himself, let's turn this big empty space into a big empty space with my name on it. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a pretty good deal. Enter Kenneth Hahn. He was born August 19, 1920, right here in LA after his dad moved the family here from Canada because he had respiratory problems, which I have to assume meant tuberculosis. Yeah. Uh, He and his parents and six brothers lived at 5931 South Flower Street in South LA and was an LA boy through and through. Like this, he's Mr. Los Angeles. And in 1937, he opened a gas station at Gage in Maine with his older brother, but then he attended and graduated from Pepperdine in 1942 with a degree in political science. And then World War II hit and political science degrees had to be turned into bullets. (laughs) He had joined the Navy right after Pearl Harbor. So the second his educational exemption was over at graduation, he shipped off, spent four years in the Navy, in the Navy, and became a lieutenant. It's pretty bold. Sorry to interrupt. It's pretty bold to hear everything that happens during Pearl Harbor and be like, I'm going to join the Navy. You could have joined any of the military services. (laughs) Well, the Navy isn't the Navy the one who got cut? Yeah, they're the one that got hit. And to see everything that happened in Pearl Harbor and be like, I want to join the Navy. I'm joining the Air Force. There's openings. 
Please continue. <laughs> I'm not. I'm I, sorry. I'm not a coward like you <laughs> who wants to be in the sky away from where the action is. I'm not gonna let that happen to me. I heard the news that day on the radio. Not, <laughs> I heard the. You're not I gonna get me like today. that. Oh boy. <laughs> nice try, Japan. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, gonna be uh, in the sky. <laughs> you know those things that you use to attack the navy. <laughs> I want to be up there also. So he became a lieutenant. Like you never will be, you coward. <laughs> they attacked the navy while I'm joining Canada. <laughs> uh, when, when he got back, he was ready to reach direct that big lieutenant energy into what he always wanted to be a sleazy politician. <laughs> but Kenneth Hahn was anything but. He was not a sleazy politician. He uh-huh. ran for city council in 1947 and was teaching political science and American history at Pepperdine at the time. So he told his students they could either do a term paper or canvas for him. And if he won that district they were canvassing in, they'd get an A, wow. which is kind of sleazy, but that's the last sleazy thing he did, I swear. All right. That is kind of sleazy, but you know, you need a street team. Who likes term papers? <laughs> um, you got me there. Unpaid internships are a problem in this world, but they get people elected. In 1947, he became the youngest person ever elected to the LA City Council at age 26 and started a very long career as a genuinely good and progressive local politician. This is a pretty good man. I'm not sure at which points in his career he did these things, but some of his accomplishments helped bring the Dodgers to LA, which my dad hates him for, helped found the Music Center, which my dad hates him for, uh, (laughs) designed the county flag and seal. Oh, wow. uh, Not the Rastafarian one, the county flag, which is like, basically it just said, it's just like blue and it says County of Los Angeles. He's like, look what I made. Yeah, (laughs) I Um, picked a font. Took a couple days, but I picked a font I like. He added the emergency phones on the sides of the freeway. Oh, wow. That's a big deal. He made it so that paramedics were allowed to cross city lines within LA County. He raised taxes to fund transit projects. He lowered bus fares. He got the volume of ice cream truck bells lowered. Oh, <laughs> suck it, Han. You suck. I thought you said he wasn't one of those bad politicians. <laughs> well, crank it up. I want to hear the entertainer. I want it to be louder than sirens. <laughs> is there a fire or is it ice cream time? <laughs> like nobody's pulling over on the side of the road because everybody's running to go get a piece of ice cream that looks like Tweety Bird. It, uh, it's has the elements that arranged correctly would look like Tweety Bird. Unfortunately, this one does not look like Tweety Bird. It has some crazed ice cream artist recollection of what Tweety Bird looks like. <laughs> he proposed LA should be its own state. Okay. He proposed a pipeline to bring water to LA from Alaska and helped build the sports arena. When he was elected to the County Board of Supervisors in 1952, he was also the youngest person ever to do so at age 32 and Whoa. eventually became the longest serving member of the Board of Supervisors ever, serving 10 consecutive terms from 1952 to 1992. For a total of 45 years in the local government between this and this time on the city council. Half a century he was yeah, helping run the show. Helping lower the volume of ice cream trucks uh, a little bit every single year. Monster. That same year he was first elected in 1952, he appointed Gilbert Lindsay as his deputy making him the first black deputy in LA history That's great. against the pressure of the other supervisors who told him that they don't do that. <laughs> Wow. Uh, Lower the volume on them as well while you're at it. And that was just the first instance of what really makes Kenneth Hahn most memorable, which was his respect and dedication to helping LA's black community at a time when nobody else in the government was on their side in in Los Angeles, or really the country. Uh, When Martin Luther King Jr. came to visit LA in 1961, Kenneth Hahn was the only elected official to greet him, not only in Los Angeles, but in all of California. He's the only person who welcomed him. That, That should probably 
probably be written down somewhere for everyone to read. As, you as want much a as, copy of this? Yeah. Can you, can you cut that little sentence off and put it tape it yeah, to the wall? We should bronze my notes and put this around town for mm-hmm. for everybody to remember. We should leave pamphlets at City Hall. He was referred to as a pothole politician because he addressed the specific needs of his constituents, many of whom were black. And even mm-hmm. though he didn't have a flawless racial record because he later defended the police chief after the Rodney King beating, yeah. but black voters loved him. He okay. won all of his re-elections by a landslide, sometimes even beating out black opponents. Like black people chose this old white guy <laughs> over a black candidate because yeah. they trusted him. Like they knew he would he would be on their side. Even the politicians who didn't like him copied his style in trying to fix the specific problems of their constituents, which I thought is what all politicians were supposed to do, but I guess yeah. not. Uh, he was also very savvy as a politician and made friends with pretty much every U.S. president during the 45 years that he was in office. <laughs> even that one. <laughs> even Jimmy Carter. <laughs> even Mr. Peanut himself. In terms of parks, Han felt that city money was being wasted on building new jails and hiring more cops and felt that it would do more good building places like parks and playgrounds, especially in neighborhoods that the city was neglecting. He said, it is much wiser and more economical to spend money constructively in providing our youth with good parks and playgrounds than it is to be constantly building more jails, juvenile halls and detention camps and adding police, probation officers and judges. Basically what I just said. What? Yeah. I said it better. I'm no, I, I, I like the second way you put it. Put that on a plaque also, me <laughs> saying what he did. I like what you copy and pasted a lot more than what you actually said so like i'd copy and paste i typed out that quote that <laughs> I was reading. my computer um, doesn't do that i removed those keys just so <laughs> i wouldn't be tempted he was responsible for over 30 parks being built in south la and naming them after prominent black americans and this was before the civil rights movement was even in full swing he was right. doing this he also helped bring the u.s department of agriculture's summer nutrition program to these parks as well as building over a dozen public golf courses 18 public pools senior centers and after school programs, all of these opening ceremonies attended by local black leaders who he put in the spotlight. He was like, don't thank me. Thank your local uh, politician. Thank you. Everybody, please go out and thank your local politician today. (laughs) Go line their pockets. Please Go give to whatever big corporation is lining their pockets. Um, The city kind of came around to his way of thinking after Watts in 1965 because they kind of started to see that maybe if there were more parks and programs and opportunities in black neighborhoods, there might be less crime. So mm-hmm. when Kenneth Hahn drove by the old dam site that day, a few years after it you know, collapsed, it all kind of clicked for him. Baldwin Hills at the time had 0.31 acres of park space per thousand people as opposed to 31 acres per thousand people in other suburban parts of LA. So it was exactly where a park needed to be. He started setting money aside to make a park there in 1968, but it wasn't until 1976 that the city bought the land to do so. And then not until June 26, 1982, that the ground was broken on construction, which the ground already broke once, but this time, <laughs> now it's in a good way. It now was, we're all wearing life jackets. When the ground was turned from a slight crack into broken, <laughs> this new park was 138 acres and it cost $27 million, which was not a lot for a park because the land was undeveloped and thus cheaper. Again, the reason for that being the same reason it was such a prime place for a dam. So the, the same old drilling that had destroyed the land eventually made it the perfect place for land to be preserved. Like it all sort of came full circle. A lot of pain and uh, yeah. slippery ducks along the way, but it, <laughs> it eventually came around. If if it hadn't been for the oil, all this land would have been turned into housing decades ago. There was no objection to it on any government level. The only objection came from 
Burma Oil, California Southern Oil Company, Shell, and Chevron, all of whom were furious to be losing out on potential oil money, none more so than Chevron, who had asked that no mention be made between oil drilling and the dam breaking ever. <laughs> like, let's never say that that was the problem. Wow, oil companies, the enemy of the people. It's good <laughs> whenever we circle back to that. Let's just say it was uh, hippies did this. Yeah, let's say it was an oopsie doopsie. Nobody <laughs> looks into that legally, that it was an oopsie doopsie. It's a loophole that we found. A loopsie doopsie. <laughs> the park opened November 14th, 1983 as the Baldwin Hills State Recreation Area and was at the time the fifth largest urban park in the United States. It's also the oldest park in Los Angeles. Did I mention that? <laughs> I have proof too. The area that was the dam is now known as Janice's Green Valley, named after Kenneth Hahn's daughter Janice, who is now on the County Board of Supervisors herself. Um, and it's also like a frisbee golf field. Okay. Like people just play frisbee golf or whatever they call it i don't know what frisbee golf is but i it's like frisbee with it? sticks i don't know okay i don't know i don't know what these yuppies do over <laughs> Baldwin hills the western part of the park was actually the site of the first fully realized olympic village ever built that was oh, made right. for the 1932 olympics it's now called the olympic forest and has at least one native tree from each of the 140 countries that came to la for the 1984 olympics wow really so it, it was involved with both olympics and is now just an area that you wouldn't know. Um, <laughs> there's the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Tree Grove. That's the spot where everybody takes the picture of downtown with the snowy mountains in the background. That's oh, okay. where it happens. There's a fishing lake that's restocked once a month. There's a lotus pond. There's incredible views and it would make a really great fort. <laughs> there's two baseball diamonds, a half basketball court, a sand volleyball court, eight large barbecue pits, 60 small barbecue pits, over seven miles of trails. It's open daily 6 a.m. to sunset, but you you have to pay to park on the weekends, which I think should be a crime. In the early 2000s, LA actually started caring about making more parks. So in December 29, 2000, 68 acres were added to the park of land that had been slated to become a giant apartment building. Chevron even shockingly ended up donating 200 more acres of former oil land to expand the park. And today it's something like 400 acres, I think, which is weird. It's like at the end of a movie from the 40s and like, you know, the banker that had been mean to them the whole time comes and like, oh, I can bring you a little bit of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the the mean old man in Mayberry? Mr. Pot. Oh, no, I'm thinking of... I, it's I, a Wonderful I'm, Life. It's a Wonderful Life. I kept on wanting to call it What We Do in the Shadows. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I got to... I, I just simply must have some human blood. <laughs> the Inglewood oil field is still producing both oil and lots of earthquakes in the area, but that's a problem for another episode. But this park was really a victory for nature in a city that historically does not care about parks and also a victory for the community, which is mostly people of color, that was fought for not only by Kenneth Hahn, who the park was renamed after in 1988, but politicians of color as well that were fighting by his side. It was yeah. a big shift in the park history of LA and an environmental victory for a part of town that has not seen a lot of environment to work with. So go take a walk in the park and bask in the glory of a place that once caused human suffering at the Kenneth Hahn State Recreation Area. It's a really nice park. Like the views are, I've heard dare that. I say, commanding. You've never been there? It, no, I've never been there. It's a really nice park to visit. Uh, mostly the top part. <laughs> so I definitely want to visit the Olympic Forest. That was something I've, I've wanted to do for a long time since we did the Olympic episode. As we were leaving, I saw the sign for the Olympic Forest. I was like, and then Melissa slapped my finger and said, we don't yeah. do parks anymore. You'll never be a triathlon. That's not 
you. Will and you give up on those Olympic <laughs> dreams of being a rapid fire shooter or whatever you said that they had? So yeah, those are a few parks in the city. Visit them all. Visit them all. Sleep in them all. <laughs> but we have a listener question before we go. This is from our aforementioned friend, Greased Weasel, now in New Zealand. New Zealand. Uh, speak, also speaking of what we do in the shadows. He asks, were there any episodes that took a toll on you emotionally, even just a little, or you just found hard to research and record? And for this, I must say... The hot sauce episodes really rattled me. It took to my it. Court. It took it out of you, didn't it? I couldn't. I had to. I was in bed for a week after the hot <laughs> sauce episode. We might have the same answer for this. I think I have two, but we probably have the same one. One of them was probably the one about the Watts uprising and the LA yep. riots. That yep. was a. Uh, that was a lot. Not only was the subject matter so painful, but what was going on? It was like right when all it was. Yeah. It was just after George Floyd. It was height uh-huh. of the pandemic. There were all the protests going on. On. like i was angry i was yeah. sad it, it was yeah it was a it was a really rough time to be reading about the going back yeah. to like to 80s and like, okay what happened now oh god <laughs> we also made a con you know we we decided in that episode like we're not going to joke around with this like let's just yeah. tell the story and it was it was it had to be told but it was also not fun <laughs> yeah i mean like i mean it, it was in the air so like you were saying it was just in the air so we was dealing yeah. with everything it was extrinsic an about it but also having to go back I'm like god this has always been the problem this has always been the problem there's there's been we're you're just like researching the pattern of problems it was depressing uh, yeah. and thanks for bringing it back up again greased weasel the other one that took a, a toll on me was the earthquake episode was a lot huh. reading about that because i'm hearing I mean, about me wet my pants hearing about you wet your pants was like oh, that could have been me um <laughs> the idea that all of a sudden, the ground starts shaking, and everything that's standing up yeah. comes down, and you, and something can something like a let's say an old brick building in Glendale could just fall right on top <laughs> of you. The, the the suddenness of it, and the the catastrophic the yeah. suddenness of I do some like if something starts if like a can of soda starts rattling on the table, I'm like, well, it was nice knowing everybody. <laughs> but I'm about to be crushed for a while, so I'll see you later. <laughs> the second one for me that I had was it's not really an episode we did, but the Marion Parker thing we just did with LA not oh, so yeah. confidential was it's like strong. like that was so brutal mm-hmm. but it also because for one of our our last haunted thing i was because there's some topics we don't really want to touch yeah and there was for the last one i was like i got the perfect story it's the story of the feral child i can't remember her name oh yeah and then i Ugh. looked a little bit into it and i was like i don't want to ever talk about this no, <laughs> i don't even yeah. want to tell people i read about this like <laughs> it's so horrible child abuse episodes uh mm-hmm. i i think we don't really do much yeah. of I would, would even if Mira Loma was in LA County, I wouldn't touch the Wineville chicken coop murders more than I have to because it's so insanely sad and, and awful. And there, uh, there's no, if you laughed about it in an episode, I would get mad at you. Yeah. That's how sensitive I am about certain things. I mean, we have, I, I can actively write about pages about the Hillside Strangler, but I just do not yeah. want to do. But any those more were research. all adults. Oh my god! Already, I'm getting mad at you. But yeah, no, like there are certain things that I, I, I could read another book about Richard Ramirez, or I can read about parks and springtime yeah. <laughs> and the Earth coming up and yeah. the dams that broke to make parks. <laughs> His follow up to this: uh, How did so much talent, good looks, and cleverness find its way? 
way into just two people. And uh, it's decades of lab experimentation is the answer. <laughs> We've been perfected over many years. But if you're not strong or the handsome one in the family, you have to get funny real quick. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to get us handsome and uh, refined or whatever you just described me as uh, real quick, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's if you right. have an iPhone, you could just open that up and leave us reviews or on Spotify, wherever you listen to us, leave us a review. It really helps us. It gets us more noticed and it makes us feel good. Like we said earlier, subscribe to us on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. We'll send you handwritten postcards. Subscribe to our YouTube channel because right. uh, we will have something coming out for you very soon that you can watch there that will not be on a podcast because it's you won't understand what's happening because it's a video. I'll follow us on Twitter at LA Meekly, Instagram, LA underscore Meekly. We also have shirts I want to mention. Let's get All these right. out of here. We have small and medium left. They're $25 shipping included. Buy these so that we can be done with it and make something new. I would like a shirt. Do you have $25? Because um, I know you need a shirt. I mean, <laughs> I see your chest right now, but do you have $25 is what I'm really wondering. I need a shirt more than I have $25. <laughs> I had $25. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's been a few parks. The weather's getting a little bit warmer, kind of. I don't know. It's a good place to go be romantic for Valentine's Day. Just it, go sit go. in the middle of Pershing Square with your petite shoe and just see what happens. <laughs> don't get on the subway. So yeah, we'll see you. All at, we'll be having something coming out on Valentine's yeah. Day, another music episode for you to oh, listen right. to with that petite shoe of yours or just alone. Oh, and also in addition to that, you just reminded me, uh, one of our Meeklings, Bruce Babcock, who's a really nice guy, put together a Spotify playlist of all of our Meekly Music Box songs. So you can go ahead and search for that on Spotify. And yeah, we'll make it. that more findable. We'll, we'll try to promote that for all of yeah. you if you haven't it's already really nice seen thing. it. I think that's a lot of fun. Yeah, um, me too. And I think also I should be getting paid for it. But oh my that's God. Okay. I should be making money off of these musicians who give me the right <laughs> to play their songs. So yeah, we'll see you on Valentine's Day. Enjoy the love month, everybody. Yeah. Uh, make some Shadow Whoopie if you would like. <laughs> and uh, that's been yet another episode of LA Meekly. Zip lining from park to park in this city since 2013. That's the, that's the sound of me zipping by and the this police is academy. Me zipping off of Zoom right now. <laughs> <laughs>